welcome to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host Dave Kale. We are uh, back after missing last week because uh, poor Corey was um, <laughs> bedridden. With, yes. I think it was the Black Death. It might have been, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but he has bounced back and recovered from his his um, brief encounter with the plague, and he's still going strong. And we're ready to uh, ready to bring you more wonderful Silmarillion film, um, far more detailed than needs to be discussion and debate. <laughs> Uh, and we have a guest on the show today, right? We have a guest on the show. Yes, a yes. podcaster. Well, he's he's getting to be he's a recurring guest now. <laughs> That's right. While in the background, making making whining noises, falling around. <laughs> um, but actually, and even more exciting. So obviously, we were joined by Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. But also, even more exciting is the return <laughs> of Chris Lambert, the That's Tolkien right. Raven. Who's that? Who's that? Yeah, we, yeah, we missed you the previous one that we recorded. Oh, so I know. That. Corey had to come all the way to Texas to fill me in on the last it's one. It's so yes. true. Yeah, yeah. It's important. Yeah. And it I had to come out for Tex-Mex. Over fajitas, he filled me in on the whole burning of the ships thing. It was awesome. awesome. I had I had real Mexican food and got to hang out with <laughs> Trish. Got to meet Buddha and all the dogs. Uh, it was great. Oh, got and to stayed in my very high high class. Oh guest man, room. four stars. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's the front of my horse trailer. Yeah, <laughs> that, <laughs> it was. A, sure it was a positive Yelp review. Really, <laughs> really cool visit to uh, to Ross Goble. It was really fun. <laughs> well, and chicken fried steak. For those of you that live in the South, Corey had chicken fried steak the next morning. I did have chicken fried oh, steak okay, for breakfast. Good. Yeah, That's exactly. He loaded up his cholesterol and sent him on his way. Did he have? Did he have like that? Like uh, cream gravy. It's just flour and water. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I totally did. Yeah, it was great. And 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 grits. I had grits with it too. It was it was like the full experience. It was awesome. His eyes were all glazed by the time he got in the car to go to campus. It was good. It was wonderful. Yeah, no, it's it's anyway, uh, well, it fantastic. Well, your your return couldn't possibly be more timely, Trish, because we're talking Hell Caraxa today. Oh. That's right. I'm so glad I didn't miss that one. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yes. we're, 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 we'll be embarking on the Helcaraxa. We'll be killing off Denethor. It's going to be a big, uh, a big day yeah, here yeah. today. Who is big who day out on a, on, on, on a, you know, on a um, death march across an Arctic land bridge? Absolutely. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, I'm starting to shiver just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, so today's episode is going to be a lot of fun. Before we uh, uh, get immersed in Silmarillion stuff, though, I want to do a couple quick announcements. Uh, so, of course, the first, uh, you know, as we've been mentioning, I was just down in Texas for uh, lots of fun visits and also, of course, for Texmoot, uh, which was awesome. Texmoot was such a great event. And, uh, you know, we had like almost 100 people at Texmoot. And it was such a beautifully run conference. It was absolutely fantastic. So excited uh, to be down there and to see so many people. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, really excited to uh, sort of get 
text moot started and, and, and looking forward to seeing that continue as we move forward. Um, this, as I've mentioned before, this project, this uh, regional moot expansion project is one of the main uh, uh, sort of initiatives that I am really pushing for Mythgard this year because I have been really excited uh, to be able to get on the road and to connect with more people. This has been something I've wanted to do forever. Trish can tell you how many years we've been you know hoping to plan this kind of thing and get this off the ground and it's happening oh, yeah. now so i'm so excited about it um we've done i guess we've, i need you to get my button gear on planning law moot well that's uh, right I'm, we're working on that dave yeah i'm 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 thinking uh i i've i've got some leads for Southern California, okay. uh, and uh, I, I, I'm 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 hopeful actually that we might be able to make that happen later in this year. That's my goal. So all right, let me know what you need me to do. Yes, no problem. I'm, I will definitely. I'm going to defend my knock on wood. I'm going to defend my dissertation later this spring. So I'll have cool. increased bandwidth after that. Well, my uh, I mean, I will I will tell you the time frame that I would really love to see if we could get Southern California together in time would be July. Uh, so okay. that we could actually time it with Comic-Con so that I could drop by and visit uh, San Diego at the same time that I'm in the area for uh, oh, that's a, for SoCal. That's a good so, idea. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. So Joy is my thought. I think I'm going to have a Comic-Con pass, which probably you could borrow one day. Excellent. Well, I, I might I might be able to sneak my way in. I'm working on that uh, on my oh, own so that we I, could both be there. Right. So, yeah, okay. yeah. All so right, anyway, we'll, so we'll take this offline, but uh, let me know what you need me to do. That would be a lot of fun, yeah. So, so that's that's so that that one's not certain, but we've got some leads and we're working on that, and and I'm I'm really hopeful for that. You know, two that so two that are actively in the works, uh, two new ones that are actively in the works, um, are for uh, uh, the southeast, uh, uh, based in Carolina and Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, uh, and then Southern California. Those are the two that are kind of in the works. However, we have a uh, uh, a definitely planned and upcoming new moot. London moot is next, April 28th. We are say. going. Yeah. We are going to England and we are, uh, and we are doing London moot. So April 28th, um, the, you know, I am so glad to be able to, you know, I feel, uh, I have felt, uh, great, uh, both admiration and compassion, uh, for our, you know, European friends. Uh, film film, of course, is one of the only, um, uh, one of the only things that Signum and Mythgard do that is actually held at a, like, Europe-friendly time. <laughs> Almost every other broadcast I do happens at, like, three o'clock in the morning over in Europe. Uh, but, uh, of course, people are so long-suffering. Um, but uh, anyhow, we're, we're, I'm, so I'm delighted to be able to go over there, uh, hoping to make some really great connections, really looking forward to being able to catch up with folks over there in the UK, hopefully some people from around. Uh, I know we've got uh, a bunch of people who, uh, are, uh, close to film film who, um, are around there, uh, in Europe and I hope might perhaps be able to, to get over to England either this year or next year to, uh, to, 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 I'd love to be able to meet with you and hang out a little bit. Um, so April 28th, uh, if you, if you are, are, are in UK, in the UK or Europe or can get over there, uh, April 28th and, 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 uh, would, would like an excuse to go to England here, here it is. Uh, this is going to be a really, really cool event. Uh, so just to, you're going to take the kids, Corey? Uh, no, 
No. Actually, as it happens, April 20th, well, you know, one of my kids is actually going to be, like, on his own separate European tour. He's got this school trip where he's touring England and Belgium and Germany, and, you know, I'm like, okay. So, he's going to be off, and my other kid is going somewhere else, so I'm like, fine, I'm, I'm going to schedule a London move then. It's going to be great. Good <laughs> Yeah, so it's nice. Um Anyway, so that's really great. But the other thing is, you know, we, as I said, we're continuing to expand regional moots. And I wanted to mention four places where I am actively wanting to, 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 to plan a gathering, um, but would love to find volunteers. What we really need to make a moot happen, moots are really, these regional moots are really simple. They're simple one-day events. Uh, they don't have to be really complicated. Some of our planners have gone way over the top. Text moot was intense uh, and wonderful. But it doesn't have to be a huge and elaborate academic conference uh, necessarily. Uh, it can be a really, really simple and fun gathering, um, as we've done in, in some other places and, and at other times. Uh, but what we do need is a place, you know, a, a, a somebody to, to help us to connect with a venue, ideally like a college campus or something like that. Um, and then we also need, you know, some kind of local contact to be able to help us to make arrangements and things, uh, uh, you know, somebody on the ground to help us make arrangements from there. Um, so I would love to have to see, you know, sometime later this year, maybe, maybe next year, um, to have regional moots in Seattle, Toronto, San Francisco, somewhere in the Bay Area there, and New Zealand. I would love to go to New Zealand uh, uh, or Australia, somewhere down in that direction. I know we have a, a bunch of people down there, too, that it would be really fun to be able to connect with. So, um Anybody who is in one of those areas and is really ex- would be really excited about the prospect of bringing a a a a, a, a Signum and Mythgard regional moot to your area, get in touch. Send us an email at info at signumu.org and uh, let us know, and we'll 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 work with you and uh, support you. You know, no volunteers going to be on their own with this. We have a an events team who helps with a lot of the 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 details, and we'll provide in, you know all the information that you need. But uh, anyway, that's uh, uh, just kind of a general call for uh, for connections and volunteers there to see if we can make that uh, 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 to see if we can make that happen. Um, So that's the plan, which I am super excited about. Uh, I hope that we can get up to uh, six or seven regional moots in 2018. uh, And uh, by the end of 2019, I hope that we can be up to uh, uh, nine or ten basically. So that's, that, that's my goal and it's going to be so much fun if we can do this. So, um, all right. Uh, and thus endeth the announcements for today. So let us get into, uh, the meat of our content here. Uh, so, uh, a couple housekeeping things, uh, first, just to, to put the script team wanted me to announce that, uh, just to, to remind everybody or inform people script discussions, uh, happen biweekly, uh, typically on Saturdays at 7:30 PM Eastern time. And all are welcome. Um, there are links on the message board to, to be able to connect to the live, uh, broadcast. They're going to be scripting or doing the script outlines, of course, for January to on January 27th for episode eight and February 10th for episode nine. Um, so the, the, just to, 
make sure that people, especially if you happen to be new, know what's going on there. Of course, in these episodes, we do, you know, we sort of talk about ideas and we, 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 we brainstorm and, and discuss sort of interesting adaptation uh, issues from the text or, oops, here I am moving forward. Um, uh, but we don't, you know, we don't, we don't really have time to sit down and do a detailed uh, outline. The script team uh, is making a making a detailed outline. Uh, uh, you know, it's not a full script. Um, you know, it's not a fully composed script, but it is a detailed outline of uh, uh, of the uh, the whole episode. And it's really neat to see those things taking shape. I think the out, the script team does a really really great job, uh, and I always look forward to reviewing the script uh, at the end of uh, the season, like we did last year uh, in season two. So, um, anyway. So just just to open that invitation to anybody else who might be interested, um, originally the original outline for the uh, uh, for the season called for two battles uh, in today's episode, in episode nine, that we would time both uh, uh, the battle under stars, the uh, uh, you know the Feanor, uh and the Fanorians defeat of the orcs in the north, and time that at the same time that Bulldog and his orcs in the south are encountering the Green Elves uh, and uh, defeating the Green Elves, though eventually themselves being defeated. Uh, And there was, uh, upon further review and discussion uh, uh, by all of our people there on the discussion boards, uh, there was some sense that... um, uh, There was some sense that uh, we might want to either expand the episode to make it a two-hour episode, or maybe we want to uh, uh, switch up the order a little bit and spread those two battles out, which I thought was a very sensible uh, suggestion. Um, so here's a, 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 a sketch outline of the last six episodes of the season. So episode eight we did last time, just to kind of remind everybody of where we were with that, right? Fanor burning the ships, Cirdan sees the flames of the ships, Fingolfin decides to continue north. So that's not the moment where they set out across the Helcaraxa, just the one where they decide not to go home, right? Remember we talked about that last time. Um, so today's episode, episode nine then, would, would be the battle in the south first, the battle with, uh, between Bulldog and his orcs and the green elves, primarily, uh, and we'd get the death of Denethor on Amon Ereb, um, and we would then add then the, the Helcaraxa crossing. So so the, the, the setting out on the Helcaraxa would then be moved to this episode. And one thing I, that I would say in general that I really like about this sort of revised outline is that it breaks up the Helcaraxa more. We were going to have more of a feature on Hel- on the Helcaraxa in episode 10. Um, but I think having spending a, like, you know, a huge, like the majority of an episode on the Helcaraxa would be kind of rough. Um, so I actually really like the idea of breaking up the Helcaraxa over basically three different episodes uh, uh, is the current plan. And I think that that will enable us to show the fact that a lot of time passes, right? That it takes a, a long time and is very difficult without having to, I, I think it will, it will, it will make that challenge a lot easier. We keep coming back to them, but yep, still crossing the hell Caraxa and we can show them in sort of different stages of extremity, you know, as they're, um, as they're struggling across, uh, the hell Caraxa. So I think that, that, that will work really, really well. Um, and yeah, Phil, it does emphasize how long it took and how, what a big deal it is, right? Um, uh, so that's so. I, I, I think that's great. That would then, in episode ten, leave us with the battle in the north, 
uh, with Feanorians and the orcs at Mithrim and the mortal wounding of Feanor. Um, and of course, then we'd return to the crossing of the Helcaraxa there as well, um, doing the second part of that, episode 11. Um, this, the rest of this is then more or less as planned. Um, we go to, uh, back to Valinor for the making of the sun and moon in episode 11. Feanor's, Feanor dies, right? And we get the attack of the spiders on Menegroth. So remember how we were talking about how uh, Shelob and the other children of Ungoliant um, uh, being roused and recruited by Sauron were going to have been infiltrating the forest and they're going to make their assault on Menegroth. So things will look bad for Menegroth at the end of episode 11. And then episode 12, we have the institution of the Girdle of Melian, you know, with the, and uh, with that, the repulsion of the spiders. Uh, the last stage of the crossing of the Hel- of the Helcaraxa, the capture of Mithros uh, at the uh, at the fake parley, uh, and then and at the th- I think at the end of the episode, then the rising of the moon, uh, leading us to in episode thirteen, Fingolfin's arrival uh, in Middle Earth, the chaining of Mithros to Thangorodrim, uh, the setup for what looks like it could be a horrible. Uh, you know, Kinslaying Part 2 around the Lake of Mithrim and the Rising of the Sun at the very end of the season. So uh, that's the new plan uh, for, you know, the outline for the rest of the season. Uh, any thoughts uh, from you two on this? I, I, like I said, I, I, I'm generally, uh, I'm generally liking this. Uh, I, you know, any, any thoughts you guys have? No, yeah, I think this sense. works great. Okay. Yeah, I, I think Hell Cracks plus two battles in one episode has been much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It really kind of yeah. is. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I like also that it en- en- enables us to maintain the momentum with Fingolfin, right? Having just spent some time with yeah. Fingolfin and the decision that he's confronted with, to follow that up immediately in the next episode with the next level of decision, right? Are you going to cross the Hell Caraxa? I think is... Uh, uh, Wise, rather than essentially not coming back to Fingolfin until episode ten, uh, and just kind of leaving it there. So, I think that that's good. I think that'll work. My my one kind of reservation. Oh, it's not really a reservation, and I don't think it's avoidable. This has always been a problem with season three. Really, is that the ending is we don't we we don't we don't have a really climactic ending right i mean we've we've been able to do pretty well so far uh you know seasons 1 2 and frankly 4 are all going to have nice and climactic endings right you know we end with the uh with the war to you know the 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 war to begin all wars in the end of season 1 and the chaining of melkor we end with the darkening of valinor in season 2 we're going to be able to end with the dagor bragalock probably um in uh, in season four, season three, by comparison, just kind of peters out, right? I mean, it, well, this is gonna, uh, you know, I think with cinematography, we can make that Mydros hanging on a cliff there pretty yeah. dramatic, yeah, and, and hopeless. You know, it's going to be, and, and I think maybe there could be a voiceover, or there could be some kind of dialogue just before, or something that really kind of makes the, you know, it, we leave on a, we leave on a note of hopelessness, which is that's not bad. No, exactly. I mean, I'm not saying it's awful. I'm not saying that we can't make episode 13 work. I told. I mean, it's just okay. Well, I was just about to say it's a little bit more, sort of less. It's a re- 
This is a real cliffhanger. This well, is a real cliffhanger. <laughs> I was trying to avoid using the word cliffhanger. That was exactly what I was struggling with. <laughs> yeah. So I went there. See how we are? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's why we keep you around, Trey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, the others have... Um, the other seasons have a real ending, right? I mean, and obviously there, there's, you know, we end the first season with the awakening of the elves. We end the second season with the return of Melkor to middle earth and the, the incipient rebellion of Feanor, you know, so there are always lots of opportunities for, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of showing how we're pushing forward and everything, but, but there's like a, a definite resolution, right? You know, we have the whole like Melkor and the Valar story, which ends with the war right. at the end. We have the right. the whole development of the unrest of the Noldor and the and the you know the the sort of the undermining of things by Melkor, which ends climactically with the darkening of Valinor and the revelation of all. Um, and we're not having that kind of moment. That's the thing that I kind of. And missing again. I'm not. I'm. Right. This, this, it's not really a criticism. I'm not suggesting we change it or do it differently. It's just. It's one of the things that I'm kind of. I, I'm feeling the, the 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 lack of is that kind of closure as well as, you know, pushing forward. Um. So. Anyway, that's uh. Just one small comment about the outline, which again, well, I, I don't think it's avoidable. We have variety in the way we end things. It's yeah. true. Yeah, it's it's so that nobody's going to be like, so time for the big battle like in the game. last episode, uh, right? Right, uh, yeah. right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah true. Go, oh gosh, they did that one differently. Oh, right, these exactly. guys actually have some substance. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean there are t- like lots. Uh, really, what we're going to be doing is ending with symbolic moments, right? You know, we will have like this symbolic. Right picture of Mithros uh, you know, being chained to Thangarodra and we're going to have the symbolic picture of um, as uh, Nick was just suggesting Fingolfin reforging uh, Ringil right, his his sword um, we're going to have uh, the symbolic the, the, the most important symbolic moment of the rising of the sun, right um, so you know, all of that is really important and it carries a lot of weight both in terms of practical plot and in terms of uh, of symbolism um, but uh, yeah but but it, none of it is really climactic action but that's fine it doesn't have to be climactic action we don't have to we don't have to we don't have to be in a rut it'll be okay that's right this isn't Marvel Comics ladies and gentlemen <laughs> that's right <laughs> Not to cast stones or anything, but yeah, (laughs) exactly, (laughs) exactly. Climactic symbolism is okay. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, cool. Um, And Marie, I agree. Uh, After you know an entire season, a couple, well, really one entire season because we had the trees at least last time. After an entire season by starlight, the rising of the sun will be dramatic and impressive. I agree. Uh, I agree. Um, yeah, cool. Um, all right. So let us, uh, let us move forward then. So let's talk about the battle, which is of course the biggest piece, uh, of this episode. Now, of course, we're talking about Bulldog and his orcs, uh, uh, who are coming down on the Eastern 
side of the the southern front down there. Um, we're going to start off by reviewing here the text. This is what we're told in the text of this battle. This is the the uh, the passages we're working with. But the orcs came down from camps in the east between Kelon and Gelion. They plundered far and wide. Thingol called upon Denethor, and the elves came in force from Regian, beyond Aros, and from Assyriand, and fought the first battle in the wars of Beleriand. And the eastern host of the orcs was taken between the armies of the Eldar, north of the Andram, and midway between Aros and Gelion. And there they were utterly defeated. And those that fled north from the great slaughter were waylaid by the axes of the Naugrim that issued from Mount Dolmed. Few indeed returned to Angband. But Denethor was cut off and surrounded upon the hill of Amon Ereb. There he fell and all his nearest kin about him before the host of Thingol could come to his aid. Okay, so the the main thing, sort of the big picture thing, right, uh, is that this battle is a victory, but it's a costly victory, right? So it's not that the the elves lose in the south exactly. Um, they the the orc army is destroyed. So if we think about this in terms of Sauron's offensive as, as we've constructed it down here in the south, remember there are basically three separate, um, uh, you know, prongs to Sauron's attack here. Right. First was the army of werewolves uh, that was racing out and attacking the Falas, right? The cities of the Falas, and they were completely successful. Well, okay, no, they were incompletely successful. They were successful in that they took the cities, right, and drove uh, the Falathrim out. They were unsuccessful in that they didn't slaughter them, right? Because the Falathrim escape on their ships. So, it's kind of a qualified success for Sauron, but certainly from a military perspective, driving them out, it was, uh, it was, it was very substantially successful. Then you have Bulldog and the Orcs coming down on the eastern side, instead of me just gesturing vaguely, let me return to the, uh, map, the big map here. Um, uh, actually, no, wait, let me move forward to the small map, because we have a small map, uh, derived from Karen Vonstead's Atlas of Middle-earth here. Um, so this is uh, 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 Doriath, the forest of Doriath down here. Um, so the orcs uh, are coming down this way, right? The werewolves were sent out this way. And then we also have the third prong of uh, Sauron's plan, which is the invasion, uh, the infiltration and invasion of Doriath itself, which is the part that's happening in secret. So we have the two open armies that are coming down. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, we had, remember, Tevildo and his cats scouting out uh, Doriath, uh, and then Shelob and the spiders uh, uh, slowly beginning uh, to invade. At least that's sort of the plan, right? His ace in the hole is the spider invasion uh, that he's going to... Uh, uh, with which he hopes to destroy Thingol and Melian's base. Um, uh, so, yeah, Mariel asks, what does it mean, do I think, that the orcs plundered? Um, the elves don't yet have hordes of gold or traditional goods of, of spoil. I, yeah, I don't know exactly what they're plundering. Um, and, and, and not plundering in the traditional sense, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not even sure exactly what that's for. I mean, thinking about the uh, in the text here, there's slaughter going on, right? Um, but they plundered far and wide. Um, uh, 
I can imagine, yeah, food, you know, Mike and Tony are suggesting food, yes. Um, uh, they, I mean, certainly they would have destroyed things. Um, you know, Hakan, I certainly agree that we're imagining them setting fire to stuff, right? Um, but certainly, yeah, it's not, it's not plunder in the sort of monetary sense, right? Um, uh, I, I can't imagine that there would have been much of anything uh, for them to take uh, either. So that's uh, 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 certainly true, Mariel. Um, uh, Mariel's wondering if maybe they took other elves. You know, do they? Do they are they? Uh, you know, still sort of recruiting additional? You know, orc fodder. I wouldn't think so, and I certainly wouldn't think that that's what uh, you know the text is referring to when it talks about plunder. Um, plunder is an, an interesting kind of word to use, actually. Um, uh, yeah, more like uh, destru- dis- destruction for its own sake. Exactly. That 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 sounds much more like uh, uh, the kind of thing. I think. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Marie says uh, she thinks we gave uh, we gave the orcs a kill them all order, uh, so no slave capture this time around. Yeah, we're gonna get the the capture of slaves is going to be one of the subplots of season four, right? Uh, You know, I think in season four is where we're going to start to build the whole elves as prisoners in Angband dynamic, right? Um, Which is something that will grow into an even bigger part of the uh, part of the story in future, uh, in future seasons, of course, especially as we get around Gondolin and that kind of thing. Um, Season three is just wiping them out. See, yeah, that Sauron is just, yeah, he's, uh, uh, he is, he is kicking butt, but not taking names. Sorry, go ahead. What's like the, what's the inciting event for, for transitioning from killing them to taking them as slaves? I would say the siege, you know, like basically once, um, right now, Morgoth upon his return, he is just like trying to establish dominion. He's trying to wipe out his enemies, right? Uh But after the sun rises... It's going to get harder, right? So the, the right. one of the one of that one of the things that the the rising of the sun and moon is going to signal, and one of the things that we need to make sure that we're conveying in those last couple episodes, um, the whole point of the this sort of final, uh, you know, big massive intervention by the Valar uh, in Middle Earth for a long time, is that it totally changes the game, right? Morgoth thinks that he, you know, this is like his kingdom now, right? You know. Middle Earth is totally his. He's thinking maybe the Valar are going to come and 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 attack him, but if they don't, you know, this place is just his playground. When the sun and moon rise, it 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 sort of levels things a lot more and enables the elves to establish their siege of Angband. Once that's established, then it's clear that like we're look, you know, I, I think it's going to be clearer to Morgoth at that point that. Um, forget the Valar invading, just dealing with the elves in Middle-earth is going to be more, much more of a long-term project than he had had in mind. Um, and so that's where I think he's going to stop just killing everybody and start. Uh, because this one of, the, one, one of the points of having the slaves, right, is not just to get the labor out of them, um, but the kind of manipulation that he can do, the kind of undermining of his enemies and, you know, spreading of dark rumors and suspicions and treacheries among them and stuff. And you don't, you don't bother with that kind of tactic if you think you're just going to wipe them out pretty quickly, right? Well, this, is, this is sort of consistent with something that's said about Sauron later, right? That, um, yes. That given a choice, he prefers force, but... 
he'll but he'll um, he'll fall back to stutter subterfuge and deceit if if required. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, as uh, as Nick also points out, massive orc casualties have a lot to do with it too. Right. I mean, since so many of the orcs are wiped out uh, in these first battles, and it be, remember, there's that that passage, especially after the the battle in the north. Um, that's you know where where it, it you know in this early st- you know after these early stages, it becomes clear to Morgoth that orcs alone are really no match for the elves, and he's got a he's got to regroup. And come up with new ideas, and so that also, you know, it becomes uh, a question of, you know, he's he's fueling his R and D projects, right? And he's, you know, so yeah, he just that's where the change of tactics, I would say, really, 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 really comes in. Um, and yeah, as Tony points out, he would also want to capture uh, people during the Cold War stage uh, for intelligence purposes as well. Right, right, that makes sense. The and the the slave capturing. Often involved that that tends to involve uh, tends to occur not during clashes of large armies, but it tends to be right. you know small bands capturing you know um, uh, capturing people out in the middle of the woods, you know small parties out in the middle of the woods, or right. like what we see with um, Baron. Right. Um, exactly. I kind of wonder if maybe is this going to be something that maybe Sauron suggests Morgoth. Oh, I would think so. Yeah. I, I mean, that's especially the way that we've been setting this up so far. I mean, on the one hand, we want to be careful because we don't want to... One of the risks of the dynamics that we've established between Morgoth and Sauron so far in this season is that Morgoth has come back and he's like ticked off, right? He's like more out of control. So Sauron is like, I'm being cunning and manipulative and and Sauron and Morgoth is just like, smash them, right? And so we, we want to be careful not to extend that too far and make it look like Sauron is really much more cunning and subtle than Morgoth and Morgoth is just a, you know, a, sort of a big thug. Um, that, of course, is not true. You know, uh, Morgoth is Sauron's example in subtlety and cunning. Now, obviously, we already established that uh, to a large extent back in season two in Valinor and you know, with his undermining of of the Noldor, but we don't want to you know lose that entirely. But but anyway, yes, I certainly think that that kind of thing. Um, th- my suspicion is that as we move into uh, as we move into season four and sort of dealing with the siege and you know working on R and D projects and stuff, Sauron is going to rise more and more, and Gothmog is going to fall. I mean, like the 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 force of mere thuggery. Um, is going to become less important, I think, in Morgoth's world. Uh, and so I think that I, I, I would suspect that we would have Sauron taking a bigger and bigger role um, in, uh, you know, in, in, in the planning and have him really become more clearly Morgoth's chief lieutenant sort of during that whole segment. But I don't want to, I don't want to take us too far off... Um... Off, uh, too far off the the main topic for this episode. But, oh, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> right, of course. Why not? Um, but I kind of wonder: is this going to create a? Will this kind of create sort of a imply a dynamic wherein um, Sauron kind of prefers the Cold War because it brings him to greater prominence? He's got more to do. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, uh, certainly when it just comes to leading troops into battle, that's Gothmog's specialty, right? I mean, he's good at the smashing things. That's, that's you know, the, the, the way that we were shaping his character as, as you know, chief thug uh, and heavy of Morgoth. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would think that that would be 
um, Sauron's movement would always be towards that, which means, you know, again, the two other places where Gothmog is going to shine um, are going to be the big battles, right? Um, the Battle of Sudden Flame. Uh, the the you know he's going to be the one we remember who who kills and defeats Fingon in the near Nith Arnoidiad, right? Um, whereas I can see, for instance, Sauron being involved in the like. Uh, breeding and training of Glaurung, for instance, right? I would see him really, really a big part of that. Also, you know, I mean, Sauron is going to be very cunning and deceitful, you know, elves in Aragion and, and, and the Numenorians. So, I mean, they, they, this could be sort of the beginning, you know, we see the beginning of yes. that here. Yeah, um, yeah. His honing that kind of skill, if you will. Exactly, exactly. Um yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and uh, well, Tony, you're right. When Gothmog falls in Gondolin, Sauron would certainly be kind of glad to hear about that. Of course, the problem is Sauron falls sooner, right? You know, Sauron isn't going to even make it to the uh, uh, to the 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 near Nith Arnoidiad, um, though. That's going to be a really interesting challenge, right? I don't want to lose Sauron as a character, and of course, we know he doesn't die, nor does he completely leave Beleriand. He just doesn't take part. Again, he's not mentioned again in the story. You know, we don't we don't hear about of anything that he does. I don't necessarily think that means he completely vanishes, right? Um, uh, and lives the whole rest of the first age in quiet retirement. Um, but it's going to be a really fun challenge to figure out what do we do with Sauron after Baron and Luthien, right? Um, but uh, anyway, so yeah, because there will be some really interesting factors to balance. But there we're getting a. Uh, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. So uh, let's uh, try to keep it to season three here. Uh, so, all right. So, uh, so again, this is sort of the overview of the military plan here in the South Sauron sneaky plan uh, to take over. Uh, and the thing that I really like about this is that we can show even when Sauron in the Southern front is losing, he's kind of, it's, he's kind of winning. Like it's kind of working out, right? Like Bulldog is going to be defeated uh, down here. Because Thingol is going to march out, and the Green Elves are going to come in, um, and what we have, you know, we have this like pincer movement, just like the Elves are going to try unsuccessfully in the Near Nith Arnoidiad. Um, but of course, while that's happening, we also have Sauron infiltrating Doriath, so that the you know even having drawn off the Elven host to fight Bulldog uh, becomes a kind of a kind of sneaky victory, right? As it leaves Doriath open and they don't realize because they don't, they don't know of any other army marching, right? Because we only have sneaky spiders and sneaky cats, um, that, uh, that, uh, this other and more insidious force is invading Doriath and, uh, closing in on Menegroth. Uh, so again, I, I really like how this positions, uh, uh, how this positions Sauron and his, and his planning. So, uh, anyway, uh, so cool. So the, again, this is just sort of the, uh, the overview. So now a few of the uh, responses to some of my questions from last time, thinking about details of this battle and how, how we, how, how we want to do this, this fight scene. So one of my questions for last time was about the Ents, because we know the Ents are the close friends of the Green Elves. We know that the Green Elves need to be, uh, well, if not defeated, they need to take very serious losses. And so we're confronted with the question, how do we have the Ents 
you know, supporting them and with them and being their unflagging friends and have Treebeard survive and yet have, you know, Denethor die, um, as you'd think it would be a priority, right? I mean, Treebeard wouldn't let that happen if he possibly could. So do we show, how do we, how do we, how do we manage that? Uh, suggestion from the discussion board, um, was, uh, that, the Ents have gone wandering, right? You know, they, they're exploring Beleriand. They're, you know, Treebeard is going around and he's waking up trees and he's, you know, he's, uh, uh, he's, he's talking to the different trees and he's seeing all the different places that he's still singing about in the Two Towers, right? In the Willow Meads of Tassaranan and all that stuff, right? From, you know, from that song. Um, and that basically they're, they're just kind of caught out. They don't realize how quickly things are moving, right? And they don't make it back in time or only come in kind of at the last minute um, after the, the, the horrible situation has arisen. That seems to me better uh, than, um, uh, than having them present, but, you know, but, but sort of helpless or failing, you know, in, uh, in, in, in some ways. So, um, yeah. Certainly, certainly would be easier to deal with if they're not there. Yeah, it really would. It really. I mean, uh, part of me feels it's like it's a, it's a it's a slight. Seem kind of weird if they're just like they just missed it. They're like, oh, sorry, we weren't there. Well, yeah. I mean, it, that could be a little bit weird. I mean, if we have them come in, you know, sort of belatedly, you catastrophically, right? They know. they come in to help, but they're it's like the ants are coming, the ants are coming, but they're too late, right? Always too late to save Denethor. Yeah. Um, remember it's a victory, right? But, um, yeah, actually that's a good, that, I think that would work pretty well. Um, I just think it'd be really, it'd be, I think it would look kind of silly if they, if they're there and then they leave and then, right. and then we have the battle and there's mass slaughter and then the end show up and say, Oh, sorry guys. But I think like if they, if, if we kind of establish the precedent that the, that the, we just very rarely do we see the ends staying in one place and that they just they're prone to wandering so it right. doesn't seem strange that they've left and then yeah if we have them like you catastrophe you catastrophically show up at the end God, yeah. that's hard as an adverb <laughs> yes, uh, if we have them show up uh, at the end and rescue um the maybe too late to save denethor but rest but but turn the tide of the battle i think that would that would work that would be effective yeah, I, I I do like that, and we can and you know because we we can have conversation. You know, the green elves can be looking for the ants to return and expecting them any minute, and then they and they do come. But you're right; we do need to be careful to avoid coming anywhere near the kind of dopey and clueless ants like Jackson's ants. I mean, that's still yeah. It still may be my number one objection. The thing I hate most about Jackson's Lord of the Ring films is like the dopey more cluelessness of Treebeard. Even even more than Fire. Because Faramir's the like the the weakness of Faramir's character in Jackson's adaptation at least has a redeeming feature, you know, in that it, it plays up the daddy issues thing, which is in fact a factor in the book. It just plays it up more by making him even more, you know, sort of mewling and pathetic, yeah. which again is a loss, it, you know, a serious loss. But but again, at least it accomplishes it, something. Yeah, and and I guess it's consistent with sort of the story he's he's trying to tell about. Um, about men and the role that they're playing in the in the war, so yeah, yeah. that's fair enough. Yeah, the ants are just <laughs> yeah, it's just like let's just undermine the ants for absolutely no reason. Like that that uh, yeah. there's yeah there's there's no moment I hate more than Merry and Pippin having to manipulate Treebeard into accidentally discovering that a huge swath of his forest has been destroyed without his knowledge. Drives me bananas every time it happens. Um, but um, 
anyway, anyway, yeah. So, um, uh, so I think we can have them arriving late and so still have them be a, a, a positive force and, um, they can have a, a sort of, their arrival shouldn't be quite as dramatic as like Bjorn's arrival at the battle of five armies. I mean, I don't think we have the elves about to lose until the ants come in, but the ants, you know, the ants, that should be decisive. Like things are turning in the favor of the, uh, uh, of the orcs or even maybe even what we play up is grief, right? You know, maybe the orcs have surrounded the green elves on Emon Ereb and they've killed Denethor, um, and then Treebeard show, you know, like the, so Treebeard and the Ents show up as like the avenging spirits, right? And they drive the orcs off of Amon Ereb, uh, and we have a, you know, a touching scene of, of Treebeard, you know, lifting Denethor's broken body in his arms, you know, and mourning a, an, an Entish lament, uh, over his, over his friend. And so we have, um, the Ents basically kind of holding up the, it, it, thinking of that pincher movement, right? Thingol's holding up his end, but the green elves are having difficulties, right? They're wavering. And then when Treebeard comes, that then the, the the rest of the green elves can kind of rally, and that's when what can... The battle as a whole will already have been kind of going in their way, and yeah, that would be sort of the decisive uh, the decisive moment. Um, yeah. So, so both Marie and Nick are resistant to this. You, neither of you like this idea. You don't want the uh, see, no, Nick. You're right. The book doesn't mention the ends, but again, this is one of those things that like is a logical extension of the things that the book does say. We know that the Green Elves are friends. We have made an even bigger deal of the friendship of the Green Elves and the Ents. Um, we know that the Ents are hanging out in Beleriand in general and Osiriand in particular. Um, it's going to be weird not to have the ends involved. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Can we not was in reference to Jackson's ends? Yeah, absolutely. Marie, we can absolutely do nothing like Jackson did with the ends. Um, yeah, yeah. And Hakan, you're right. It's not like they changed the outcome of the battle. I, I, I don't want to, you know, I, I, I say that their arriving can be kind of you catastrophic. I don't mean, uh, that it should be like the, the Eagles are coming. Right. Um, it definitely should not be the thing that, you know, unexpected, suddenly and unexpectedly turns a, a certain defeat into unexpected victory. That shouldn't be the kind of dynamic there. I don't, I don't think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, well, Nick, but I disagree with you that the battle works better without them. I don't think that's true at all. Um, and the reason to use them here is there are a couple of what we would gain by using the ends here. The number one, we would gain further development of Treebeard's character, right? And giving more history and background to the story of Treebeard, which is a long, slow story, which we're going to come back to at many points. There will be many other points where we will be bringing Treebeard into the story uh, because we will want to be asking the question, what was Treebeard up to at this time? How w- what would the Ents think about this, whatever this thing is that is happening, you know, right near where we know for them to be and with things and people that they care about? So we want to, I think that just making the Ents uh, and Treebeard in particular sort of bigger and better characters uh, is, uh, is, is, is a, a good end uh, in itself that will pay dividends for many years to come. Um, secondly, um, the other thing that we get here is the, 
sort of the salvaging of the the I, I, as uh, Tony is saying the the sort of the the eucatastrophe isn't that the elves win like they don't they don't make the elves win it's that they enable the elves to survive i really like the idea of the ents coming in and being instrumental in in saving the all, all of the green elves that do survive once again cementing their friendship and showing um uh, uh, showing what happens. As Milthaliel says, uh, she says she likes it because she feels the Ents' role is often to mourn what happens when battles rage. I, yeah, I, I, I like the idea that th- their primary job is not going to be as warriors. I mean, they are going to come in and, and, and stomp on a bunch of orcs there at the end to help to preserve the last of the Green Elves, but they're not going to be the ones who primarily carry the battle, right? The thing that we're going to primarily see is their um, to preserve, to remember, and even to lament. I, I think that those are all three things that are super important to, like, the role of Ents in Middle-earth, right? Uh, and what we will see them doing. So, uh, th- that just developing that, I think, is, uh, is, really, is really worthwhile. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, um... Good. Okay, so Mike is uh, Mike Huxton. Okay, right. Mike was referring up to the second point on this page. Um, so the proposal was for Mablung to join the Green Elves, um, and that we see how Denethor decides to go to war. Mablung was going to be the messenger of Thingol to the Green Elves to rally them and call them to battle. And one of the challenges that people on the discussion board were pointing to is like, how do we? We need Mablung to survive. Right. Um, so how does Mablung survive and let everybody else die without looking like a git? Right. I mean, how does he how does he not seem to be a cowardly loser uh, that he manages to survive and everybody else dies? Um, and as Mike Hoxted is pointing out, the intervention of the ants helps with this. Right. You know, if we have um, Mablung and Denethor and, uh, and several others of the Green Elves and, and, uh, and, you know, only, you know, Denethor dies, but, uh, you know, but a few of them, you know, Mablung can be one of the ones who is sort of rescued by the Ents there. Um, uh, that would make, that would make sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Nick, let me clarify the role that I see with Amon Arab. Uh, Nick has wanting me to clarify this sort of, on the one hand, the offensive pincer movement, but also the role of Amon Ereb as a defensive position. Um, The thing that here, from a tactical standpoint, here's how I see that operating. Again, the point is the orcs are coming down and the elves are attacking them from both sides, right? Um, The orcs are are large enough hosts, they're going to be fighting them off on both sides. Um, They succeed much better, obviously, with the green elves. So as the orcs beat back the attack of the Green Elves, the Green Elves are forced to retreat to Amon Ereb uh, against the tide of the orcs that are coming in their direction. Um, so the fact that Amon Ereb becomes a defensive uh, location in the battle is because they're losing, right? So they're driven back to Amon Ereb, and Amon Ereb is then taken by the orcs, and Denethor is killed. Um, but that then tactically becomes a big deal because the orcs are going to lose, right? So if the orcs have taken Amon Ereb, the defensive position, and then they lose, um, why are they not? Um, why are they not building a, you know, 
why don't they ford up on Emon Ereb, right? So I think that having Treebeard and the Ants come and drive the orcs off of Emon Ereb um, is what can sort of precipitate the general orc retreat from the Eastern Front. Um, they're already losing. Thingol has defeated them, right? So we have the orcs, uh, you know, the, 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 the emphasis of the battle can be on Emon Ereb, basically. Um, that can be where most of the screen time happens, right? Um, when Treebeard comes in, and the, you know, when Treebeard and the Ants come and drive the orcs off the hill, they start, and then th- at that point we have we show Thingol showing up from the from the distance, right? We know that he has won his battle, and he comes and he attacks the orcs from behind. And at that point, with Treebeard and the Ents having taken the hilltop and and starting to drive the orcs down, and then Thingol and the other uh, army coming up from the other side, that's when the orcs scatter and retreat. Um, so I think that that could work well enough and would make sense and would enable us, as I say, to have the, our, you know, the sets basically really primarily be Amon Ereb. Um, we don't even have to, uh, we don't even have to necessarily get into, um, uh, what's going on with Thingol. Like we don't even have to necessarily show that we can just sort of know that they're in battle, right? Talk about the fact that they're, that they have met with the orcs and, a lot of the suspense of the of the of the episode, I think, could really be on the fact that you know. So that most of the episode takes place with the green elves, follows the green elves, and the battle with the green elves is not going r- well, right? So through most of the episode, it's going to look like this is a this is a defeat, right? This is a defeat. All you know, we now bring you to the defeat already in progress, right? That's that's what this episode is going to look like as the green elves are driven back and back and back. And then only at the end is it revealed because they know they're meeting with these orcs on one front and Thingol's meeting with them on the other front that we, you know, we, we've established that that's the plan. Um, but again, on this front, it's going terribly. And so they're all wondering and worrying, like, is Thingol having as a hard a time of it as we are? Like, are, you know, has Thingol also been driven back? Are they, are the, are the, are, are the Sindar being destroyed right now? Just as it looks like we might be about to, is this the end of, you know, Beleriand as we have barely known it? Um, and then at the end, not only does Treebeard come in and help them to take back Amon Arab and drive the orcs out, but that we see that actually Thingol was successful all along, right? So, uh, so the battle happened has been won. So we are able, we should be able to create that kind of eucatastrophic effect without actually having a reversal, right? Without actually having a, a, a complete, like, we are near defeat, but actually it turns out to have been a victory. We can have that effect, but it's it's only in perception, in a sense, right? Because Thingol, off screen, Thingol had been winning the whole time. Um, do you... Uh, do you see what I mean by that? So, I mean, I think that, uh, now, oh, who was it? Tony is asking a really good question. Uh, no, wait, no, it wasn't Tony. Sorry. Tony always asks really good questions, but that's not the one I'm looking for. Oh, no, it was Tony. Just a different Tony comment. Okay. Tony was saying, why would it be Mablung sent and not Beleg? Um, that's a great question. My answer to that would be, I mean, I kind of like the idea of having it be Beleg as well. 
or sorry, of it being Mablung as well that's sent down to the Green Elves, because I suspect that Thingol would know. Mablung is more like the the soldier, right? He's more of the general, um, whereas Beleg is 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 the hunter and march warden, right? So he's he's the one who specializes in woodcraftiness and in patrolling and things like that, right? So you know when he's up on the northern marches later on with Turin and stuff, that's 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 the main kind of. That's the thing that he specializes in, whereas, like, leading, you know, troops into battle is not Beleg's thing so much. It's, that's more Mablung's thing. And Thingol would know that the Green Elves aren't great at that, right? So he's, at, um, he's asking them to come into battle, but he knows that they're not necessarily battle-ready. So the idea that he would send his commander uh, to, uh, uh, to, to lead them into battle is... Um, makes makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I think that that, that, that really works. Um, and I don't think it necessarily... I mean, the fact that the Green Elves are losing, I don't think necessarily need make us think less of Bele, of, of Mablung personally. Like that he's... Uh, I don't think that he's necessarily an inept battle commander. This was Nick's concern. I, I, I mean, I, I see that concern, but I don't think it has to go that way. Because, I mean, like... It's not his fault that the green elves are ill armed. Like they just they don't they don't have they don't have armor. They don't have the right, they, don't, they don't have the right kind of armor and weapons. I mean, we can show him kind of doing the best that he can with what he has, but in the end, they're just overwhelmed by superior armory and superior uh, numbers, basically. Um, so we can show him, you know, rallying Denethor and the green elves to a heroic stand. Um, but a heroic stand that ultimately fails. Now. No, I'm confused about this. So uh, the script team is informing me that they've put Beleg on the other side of the continent anyway. Um, why is Beleg with Cirdan? Oh, wait, we sent him to Cirdan to warn him? or And to say so he was the one who went to Cirdan to invite Cirdan to come and uh, and and come to uh, uh, Menegroth and then Cirdan says, no, thank you. Is that is that what I'm remembering? Swap what? him out. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out why Beleg is... I don't remember why Beleg is in the Havens. Of course, I barely ever remember anything, but... Um, <laughs> uh, but like I said, to, to me, I don't think we need many excuses. I think that Mablung is the sensible person. Because um, essentially, thinking about it from a, from another direction, right? This is also sort of Thingol saying, you guys need help, right? I don't trust you guys in battle. I mean, I, I trust you personally, but I don't trust your efficacy in battle. So I'm going to send my battle commander so that the Sindar are commanding both fronts, essentially, right? Um, I think it makes all kinds of sense for him to send Mablung for those reasons. Um, okay. I, Mablung, or Beleg. Now back to Beleg. I'm okay. If you guys want to send Beleg over to the Havens to have him be... And, but then, of course, he's got to end up being on the ships with Cirdan. I'm a little worried about Beleg being away for so long. Aren't we going to want him? Mightn't he be handy when it comes to spider combat? I... It is a little... Cons- it seems like a missed opportunity not to have him in the thick of things. Yeah. Can we... Can we just do a Peter Jackson and he traverses the whole continent? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> No, well, no. especially because I think we want to engender a real. How you like that engender? Yes, that's good. <laughs> I'm that's being good. Fancy <laughs> a relationship with the audience. You know, I mean, we right. we want to know Beleg as a friend by yes. the time we see him again in, in the 
you know, crucial story. Exactly. And so now, I, you know, by sending him over to Kyrdan, we can have him involved in the Kyrdan story. And I mean, it's a, we could get to know him either way. It just depends on how we want to get to him. Remember, there's there's another character whom we would want to get to know better and whom we have the opportunity to feature here, too. And that's obviously, as Maria is suggesting, Celeborn, right? So I was, I was just having the same thought, actually. Yes. Yeah, we've got four guys, right? Uh, four of the of the big uh, um, Doriath dudes, right? That we need apart from Thingol and Melian and Luthien. We've got we've got Mablung, Beleg, Celeborn, and uh, Dairon the Minstrel. So presumably, Dairon the Minstrel doesn't play any big role in the military engagements here, right? So Dairon is nice obviously back up. Being an elfly elf, you know. Well, I mean, to show that he actually like got some substance to him. Right, right. Um, yeah. So I mean, where do we want to have uh, Celeborn? So I, I'm kind of thinking like it's it's sort of to me it seems between Celeborn and Beleg, right? Which one do we send to be with Kyrdan, and which one do we keep with Thingol? Um. I. Um, so, yeah. So, Marie, we have Dairon not involved in the fighting, though he'd be present, wouldn't he? It'd be kind of fun to have at least a little, like, how would Dairon participate? I mean, he could just be fighting, but, um, I mean, I wouldn't want to make Dairon just like a wimp, like the wimp who stays home and, you know, uh, plays music for Luthien while everybody else goes to war. Uh, he could be making up songs about the battle on the sidelines. Because, well, <laughs> like, the music of Dairon has to be significant, right? I mean, I'm not necessar- necessarily saying it has to be a huge battle weapon uh, directly, but it has to be really important. If Dairon plays no role of any kind in the battle, I at least want Dairon to be involved in the, like, saving of Menegroth, like, around the time of the Girdle of Melian. Right. Like, we, we need to show that his... That he and Luthien together, like when he and Luthien are making music, like do, and doing their singing and dancing thing together, it's a big deal, right? You know. Uh, so, but anyway, we can we can we can we can come back to that later on. Um. Uh. So yeah. So Nick, I agree. We keep him home for the spiders. Um, Hakan wants to know why Dairon can't be a wimp. I'm not saying he can't be a wimp, uh, and I, I'm totally fine with having Dairon be on the wussy side. But I, but we have to, we have to be careful not to fall into a stereotype of like, I am not a warrior. I am like a musician and singer instead, as if those two things are totally different things in Tolkien's world, right? Um, that's the thing I, I want to make sure he's we got resist. Some kind of backbone or value to make him be. I mean. You know, Luthien and he are good friends. Right. Not, you know, I mean, right. make her worthy, make him worthy of Luthien. Yeah, exactly. Especially we, in Thingol's eyes. That, exactly. Yeah, we, we, making him worthy of Luthien. I, I, I wasn't thinking that explicitly, but I think that was one of the, the, my, the anxieties in the back of my mind. Because Dairon is not, I mean, he, in the end, he's going to, you know, uh, sort of, you know, wimp out. I mean, he's he's going to be squirrely and do the wrong thing. Um, so it's okay if we don't make his character super, super noble, but that's exactly why I don't want to make him ridiculous. You know, why, why, why I wouldn't want to make him just a wimp. Well, it isn't, I mean, he's kind of Thingol's first choice, isn't he, for his daughter? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's yeah, the, right. he, he, he should be 
including to the to the viewers, right. everybody's like the default. Like everyone assumes that Dion exactly. and Luthien are going to get right. together, right? I, I mean, talked about that before, didn't exactly. Yeah. The two of them should be like obviously exactly. made for each other, right? So that like Be- right. Baron coming in is a surprise to everyone, Luthien not least. Um, uh, so yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, but but as they say, I'm fine. We can save. We need. So I I I would like some. Diron heroics at some point uh, in, no, I, in this to, season. To ask the, the devil's advocate question. Why not make him heroic? Right. Exactly. Exactly. I think that we should show that. I mean, we're talking about the person whose music is like better even than Magor's, right? The, you know, the guy who may yeah. be the greatest musician of the first age. Like, that's a huge deal. Uh, you know, the greatest musician who ever lived. Heroic and having him miss out on Luthien makes it even that much more sort of pointless, Yes, I exactly. Yeah, you know what I mean? I'd say, I'd say this is a good opportunity to take a character who's kind of a, kind of a one-dimensional character, you know, whose right. sole purpose in, in the story is just to be a foil um, and then making him into like, you know, I think it'd be cool if he basically, if his story is sort of a fall, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. To show that to show to, uh, having his betrayal of Luthien be a fall, I think would be a really good effect mm-hmm. too. So, um, so yeah. So again, I'm fine with having. Uh, I, yeah. So this idea I love. I, I I would like to build up Dairon, but yeah, let's let's have him do anti spider heroics. In fact, somebody was joking. Who was it? Uh, uh, Hakan was joking about Dairon singing uh, Adderkop and Tom Naughty songs. Um, Hakan, I love that. I love that, right? The idea that we can create a parallel, right? You know, so that Dairon singing songs against the spiders in Doriath, that we could have Bilbo's spider taunting songs in Mirkwood down the road be like a visual parallel to Dairon singing songs against the spiders is the coolest thing ever. Oh my goodness, that Did is Bilbo awesome. Bilbo recite his titles while he's fighting the spiders. Does he have the spiders? <laughs> uh, no, I can't remember. No, not exactly. No, oh, no. Okay. It's where he's singing the Adderkop and and Crazy Lazy Lob and Crazy Cob. Yeah. But you're you're right. I think it'd be an awesome parallel to that. It's abs. That would be <laughs> so much fun. So much fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so to to have to have. But of course, the, the point of that parallel is not to reduce Dairon and make him silly, but rather to elevate Bilbo. That like while Bilbo is singing his his like right. funny spider poetry, he is recapitulating one of these great heroic moments. You know that that it's it's one of those. And of course, um, Dairon's theme will be playing while in the in the soundtrack while Bilbo is doing that. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Mu- musically, we could connect them, right? Uh, right. I love right. that. Oh, I love it. Okay. No, this is Hakan. That is that is brilliant. That is that is great. Okay. So we have, so we have to figure out how to work that in. But that is not today's problem. So so we've got a role for Dairon. Um We okay. So Beleg and Celeborn. So one of them needs to be with Thingol in the army. And the other needs to be sent with Círdan and maybe coming back, but will have to have been off on the ships. And I, here's okay. I can see arguments on both sides. On the one hand, having Celeborn be next to Thingol, you know, at Thingol's right hand in the battle. Kind of, you know, showing Celeborn being strong and awesome is cool, right? I mean, I, I like that. The downside, Thingol's side of the, I mean, if we do the battle the way that I was just suggesting on screen, Thingol's side is going to get almost no screen time, so we won't get any Celeborn heroism on screen, right? 
will just kind of feel like, trust us, Kelleborn did awesome things off screen that you didn't see, right? Um, right. Like, <laughs> ever the fate of Kelleborn. Uh, to... We're going to have the Elven, Elvish girls saying, ooh, that Kelleborn, he's so brave. <laughs> but we don't actually show him doing anything. Exactly, right. <laughs> Which is exactly what we get in the Fellowship of the Ring. Like, trust me, Kelleborn is awesome. You don't see any evidence of it, right. but take my word for it, Kelleborn is cool. <laughs> That's exactly now, Galadriel's admit, whole maneuver. Though, influenced by you, since I've been, you know, listening to you for eons now about the books, that when I, I can't remember, it was a couple readings ago of the Lord of the Rings when I when I was reading Galadriel's like speeches to the company when they arrive at Lothlorien, I read it in a whole different way <laughs> than I ever had before because it was just like trying to like protect the fact that she's got this wussy husband and she's kind of building him up to the fellowship but it's like yeah right right you know I mean it, I had never read it that way before <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah well okay so first of all a couple of you are saying but wait a second wasn't Belig with Kyrdan that's ex- my whole point is I'm, I'm second guessing that or at least I'm, I want to open that discussion again I'm not sold on Belig being the one that we send to Kyrdan um, and here's the main reason for that um, uh, 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 Nick for instance is, is sort of saying that you know ferrying Belig back um, could be relatively easy because you know there are bunches of ships and stuff and yeah I see that um you know, because we can have, you know, after they flee from the Falas here, we can have Celeborn send one ship with, you know, like have a conversation with Beleg and be like, you go back home. And so he sends, he sends Beleg back, you know, like, t- you know, one swift ship to take him back and then sail up Syrian and, and then get him back home. Like that could happen, right? I'm not saying that it's a logistical problem. Um, but first of all, I'm not sure that that isn't a wasted opportunity. Um, mightn't it be kind of fun to have a member of uh, of Thingol's court with Kyrdan up here in the north, right? Witnessing from afar the burning of the ships, coming across the, the you know, would, might not be kind of cool? Um, you know, I'm just, I'm thinking we might want to keep one of the people of Thingol's court with Kyrdan uh, during this whole sequence. Um, I I'm actually myself still not 100% sure where uh uh like what Kierden uh, is going to be doing. I think the script team has more plans for Kierden than I have in my head currently. So I'm not really sure exactly what Kierden is going to end up doing over the rest of the season. Um but uh but anyway, I think I you know, I have a vague sense that it might be cool uh to have uh, to have one of the one of the people of Thingol with him during that whole time, and if that's true, should it be Celeborn or should it be Beleg? And the more I think about it, I like Celeborn being with Kyrdan for a couple reasons. One, Kyrdan is the one who is interacting, like beginning to interact with the Noldor there, and of course, no, you know, Galadriel's not present, right? You know, Galadriel not present at the burning of the ships and everything, um, but still, like bringing, beginning to bring Celeborn into contact with the Noldor enables us maybe to to do some interesting and kind of fun things with that. The other thing that I, but I think even honestly, the thing that I struggle with even more is Beleg on a boat just seems wrong. It just seems wrong. Bella doesn't belong on a boat. You know, he's a he's a woodland dude. You know, he's a he's he. he Bella is wasted on a boat, 
right? Celeborn can be all, like, wise and discerning and whatever on board a ship, right? Uh, and establishing him in, like, really close relationship with Círdan could pay cool dividends later on as well. Um, but, uh, but, uh, do you, I don't know. Does anybody else feel the same that I do about Beleg on a boat? It just like, I'm just picturing, I'm just like visually yeah. picturing Beleg with his bow on a boat and with nobody to shoot at and like no woods to, to sneak through. And it just <laughs> seems wrong. Well, also, you know, if we have Celeborn, if we have Celeborn like witnessing the burning of the ship, something that Galadriel's not at, I mean, it, it gives them, well, not that particular topic, but like when they do meet and court, which I assume they will, um, there's going to be kind of, the, you know, him having witnessed that is going to give him some kind of what? Empathy? Sympathy? Uh, I don't know. You know, I think it would impact positively yes. sort of the story of them getting together. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Like, for so for instance, I could imagine... Oh, I like that. Yeah. On the day when the news of the kinslaying breaks, right... Uh, and Thingol is doing his whole like ah so like the Noldor have come red handed with the blood of their kin I I marvel at you right as he's going to be saying to uh, uh, to Finrod right I marvel at you to you know to come to to my board thus red handed with the you know so ke- to have Celeborn basically be remembering the burning of the ships right to have Celeborn be a voice to support them and say you know not all the, there's Noldor and then there's Noldor you know. Um, let's not forget that they, you know, remember the thing that, um, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Angrod is going to be reminding Thingol, right, that those who crossed the grinding ice are kind of in a different category from the Feanorians, right? And so uh, Celeborn remembering the burning of the ships will have, like, on the one hand, a really visceral connection to the you know the idea of the kinslaying like these are the, he saw the whole you know the the husks right. of, the, of the ships of the Teleri but he also is keenly aware of the suffering that the that the you know the uh, the sons of Finarfin and and and, and Fingolfin uh, suffered in the crossing of the Helcaraxa and how they were betrayed by Feanor as well um, and how yes they're kind of guilty um, and yes they concealed the kinslaying and covered that up but they too were betrayed. Uh, by Feanor, just as the Teleri were. So, you know, having him be a voice for that, you know, having been having been witness of the ships, there's kind of something I, you know, uh, there's kind of something I think that we could we could sort of uh, we could sort of make that. Uh, um, <laughs> Phil says, "There we go, Galadriel observing Celeborn being wise." Right there we go. That's it's his it's his big chance to make it to make an impression on his future wife. Right. <laughs> uh, um, okay. It also might give you know, kind of give Celeborn an affinity for her just to begin with, right? You know, based on what he saw. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, compassion you know, for I just, her, or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah sure, yeah. sure. Um, yeah. So. Nick is reminding me that, or informing me, I don't remember which it is, but they're functionally the same thing. Um, 
that one of the points of having it be Beleg is that because Beleg would be or that the idea was okay. Beleg was over at the Falas with Kyrdin to warn him or invite him to come back, and Kyrdin was going to say no thanks. And then the werewolves attack, and then Beleg was going to his priority was going to go to carry news of the fall of the Falas back to Doriath. Um, and so Nick is arguing that it would be kind of weird for the representative of Thingol to be like, ah, you know, whatever, Thingol's on a need-to-know basis, I'm going to just like hang out with you people and sail with you in exile because, you know, that seems like the thing to do. I, I, I get that objection. And then, of course, since the role of the representative of Thingol was going to be basically returning, you know, having this long solo journey back across Beleriand to return to Thingol with the news, that was the way that it fit Beleg, that we have Beleg the Hunter, you know, sneaking his way through. Uh, And it's true that that would provide us some opportunity of, like, Beleg to encounter some of Tevildo's cats, or maybe even Tevildo himself, right? And, um... uh, I, 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 you know, so that he not only returns to Thingol, but has gathered some, he can give him some kind of, uh, he can arrive with not only news of the Falas, but of uh, sort of uneasy warnings that all is not well back in Doriath and that something else is stirring in the forest and stuff. I, I, I can see that. I can see that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I can see that working. Then he doesn't have to be on a boat for very long, at least, so it wouldn't be that wouldn't be too weird. We could send them both. <laughs> we could send them both. How about we send them as a team? Right, the two of them go together uh, to the Falas, and Celeborn stays with Kyrdin while Beleg returns home. Right? Uh, how about that? We can have it both ways. Why not have it both ways? Because, see, the problem with Celeborn staying home is that, again, he gets no screen time, right? I mean, we lose the chance of having Celeborn be awesome at all. And, again, I, I'm, I'm liking this sort of his empathy with the Noldor and his different perspective on the Kinsling and things. I, I'm kind of liking this plot. Um, Maria's asking, Does, is that... Am I okay with the fact that Caliborn will then miss out on the spiders and the girdle? Yes, because he—that's he, not going to be. I mean, it's going to be Melian and Dairon and Luthien, right? Are going to be are going to be the primaries there in this with the spiders and the girdle anyway. So there's not going to be any role for Caliborn anyhow there. Um, um, so yeah, yeah. Um, and we can we can give him something else to do. I mean, again, whatever Kyrdin is going to get up to, Celeborn can help with that. Or you know, he, we can dispatch him later on, Celeborn, to be a, a, a further messenger. He can be bearing tidings of the Noldor, uh, the arrival of the. He can be the one who brings the tidings of the Noldor to Doriath, you know, at the end as well. So, um, yeah, again, maybe Celeborn can be the guy who's zooming back and forth across the continent. Right. Well. Uh, nah, I still like that. I like having it both ways. I like having it both ways. Let's have it both ways. Yeah, yeah. No, maybe, it's good. Maybe Celeborn's the one. Maybe Celeborn starts breeding the um, super fast rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to zoom anybody across the continent. We're totally fine for travel time. It's not a problem. 
Uh, as uh, as Nick points out, you know, we have fast ships that can take us around from the Falas and up the Syrians. So, you know, the uh, the journey of Beleg will take a while. I mean, he's not going to get there in time for the battle. I, I would think that Beleg would arrive right after the battle happens. And at this point, it's now, what, three episodes since the fall of the Thalus? It's been a while, right? So we have plenty of time for Beleg to have been journeying while this other stuff is going on. Um, and then he arrives after the orcs are defeated, and in order to warn uh, Thingol that all is not well in Doriath and that there's big, scary, sneaky things sneaking around in Doriath, and that's how we can then transition back to Menegroth and and uh, uh, and Dairon and, and Melian and the Girdle, right? Um, uh, and so Marie says, so Thingol has no one of import with him in the battle. Yes, yes. Because uh, remember, he doesn't need any. He, he's just going to win, right? And he's going to win off screen. So we don't, we're not going to have any, you know, we, we don't need to feature anybody with him um, because he's not going to be doing anything on screen other than marching in at the end victoriously. So, um uh, so that's fine, actually, if his supporting cast is comparatively small. Um, he can be expecting Beleg to return and wondering at why Beleg is taking so long, which can then set us up to Beleg's story about how he was delayed because he met giant cats and ginormous spiders. So that's fine, but um, but yeah, so that would be that, that would be fine. Besides, what are you guys talking about? This is where we turn Luthien into an action hero. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's just it. Yeah, I, I can't wait to like those scenes of like Luthien with a sword in either hand, like you know, yeah. and, like up, you know, with like spattered with spider gore, and yeah, it's gonna be awesome. Correct. It's gonna be awesome. <laughs> uh, it's just what everyone's been waiting for. I know. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, Hawkins says, what about Elmo? Didn't we cut Elmo? I am sure that we said there would be, we're not going to have any elf named Elmo. Uh, like, that is not going to be allowed to happen anywhere in this film film pro- project. So, yes. Good. So, yeah. Uh, Hawkins, we could have Elmo and kill him off <laughs> in the battle. <laughs> no, just kidding. I don't, I don't No Elmo. No Elmo. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, hey, let's go back to the slide now that I'm done with the map here. Where were we? Down here. Okay. All right. Um, so coming back to, we've talked about a bunch of these. Let me go through some of these other points that we have on our slide here. Thoughts and suggestions from the discussion boards. Um, Okay, so we've got, yes, Mablung, Mablung joining the Green Elves and uh, uh, and seeing how Denethor decides to go to war. So he arrives not only as the messenger, but like, hi, I'm here with a message for Thingol, and I am here to lead you into battle as well. So Denethor agrees to work with him, and, and off they go. The contrast between the leather armor of the Green Elves and the ironclad orcs, yes. The, it should look like, as, as, as people were suggesting earlier on... It should look like a miracle that the that the, the 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 green elves should be so far outgunned by the orcs that it should look like a miracle that any of them survive. Like it is, it is a testimony to Mablung's skill as uh, a battle commander that they don't just get like the floor mopped with them. You know that they're able to put up a, a, as much of a resistance as they do and not get completely. Uh, annihilated. Uh, yeah, Marie, it's not quite Ewoks versus Stormtroopers, but but it, it yeah, yeah. Uh, not quite proportionally, but uh, <laughs> but something along those lines, yeah. Um, okay, uh, the con- uh, so yes, uh, the challenges of uh, communication between the various allies, Sindar, Dwarves, Nandor, and the Ents, yes, we should have lots of people 
people wondering what happens, what's happening elsewhere should be a feature, right? Um, the, Mablung has come to the Green Elves, and so and so he tells them what the plan is, right? So they know that Thingol is going to be attacking from the other side, but they have no idea uh, he has attacked, right? I mean, they, they have no idea, right? They're hoping that he has actually attacked. Um, trusting that he has attacked, they're hoping that he's not getting slaughtered. But, of course, again, given how badly things are going on their side, uh, they're going to be worried that he is being slaughtered somewhere uh, far away and they don't they can't see it and don't know that it's happening. So the dwarves should be a complete mystery, right? Because they're not only... They're hoping for help. They've sent a, uh, for aid to the dwarves and they're hoping that the dwarves will come and aid them and attack the the orcs from the north. But they, not only do they have no communication with them to know whether that's going to be happening, but of course they're not sure if they can trust the dwarves either. Uh, so they're, um, they're, there's a, they're, they're in all kinds of doubt and suspense about that, and they're certainly not counting on the dwarves, uh, but kind of hoping for that. And then the ants, like they, they know they've, they know that the ants will not abandon them, but they don't know for sure where the ants are. They know that they've been wandering and, and, and are expecting them to come back, but don't know if they're going to, if they're going to come back. So yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Tony is reminding us that, you know, we do always have, there's no, textual reason that we can't have elves using, like, communicating through birds, like talking to birds and sending messages by way of birds to each other and things, as an example of, you know, uh, they, elves do, in theory, have, uh, you know, as as uh, magical beings, as T- Tony points out, have more resources at their disposal for things like this than, you know, human arm, you know, modern human armies would. Um, I agree that that's true. I think we want to be careful with that, of course. We don't want to exploit that too much. Um, or it could end up getting... Yeah. Chris says, birds, yes, moths, no. Agree. No moths. Uh, uh, no moths will be uh, used as messengers at any point in the film film project. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Nick says, how, how does Mablung expect the Green Elves to survive this? Okay. I think... Again, working out the tactics in ways which we don't necessarily need to spell it. We don't need to have a schematic map on screen or something. But if I'm Mablung, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, Mablung has encountered the orcs. He knows that they're steel-clad, right? Um, He arrives among the green elves and says, hey, I'm here to lead you into battle, and he looks around and he sees that nobody has any real armor, uh, and they have very little even in the way of metal weapons, and he's like, okay, right? He's going to be enough of a battle commander to realize they're going to be serious underdogs. So Mablung's plan A is not going to be Let's lead a frontal charge, you know, into the in into the uh, into the orcs. I think that um, what his plan would be would be to engage. Okay, again, if I'm Mablung, this is what I'm thinking. 
lay ambushes, draw the orcs into it, establish a defensive position behind the lines, right? Amon Ereb, right? So he'd planned for Amon Ereb all along. That would be his his plan, right? Um, What the green elves have is stealth and archery, right? So he would... uh, plan to sort of set ambushes and try to, uh, to, you know, to hit and run them, right? But his point would be, thinking big picture, his goal would be to draw the orcs towards Amon Ereb where they could, where the green elves could stand defensively um, through fortifications, right, at Mount Ereb. So he, or at Amon Ereb, same thing. Um, so he's trying to draw the orcs to attack him so that Thingol from the other side could attack the orcs from the rear, right? Because he knows that Thingol's army is the one that has the chance to beat the orcs uh, on the flat, right? But he'll give them the best chance that they can have if the orcs are chasing the green elves, right? So he'll use the orcs to engage the green elves and to chase them down and then ideally besiege, hopefully futilely besiege the Green Elves on Amon Ereb um, while Thingol comes up from the rear. But then this is where it... So which is kind of like a reasonably good plan, I think, right? Um, And... uh, But the problem is Thingol doesn't get there as quickly as it looks like. I mean, notice, like, we can set up the Nirnaith Arnodiad, right? Again, we have another, we have like a, a, another one of those moments which we can use as a setup for later on because again, this kind of pincer movement, this two, uh, you know, elf kindreds planning to att- to take the, the, the armies of Morgoth as between hammer and tongs, we're going to do this again, right? And of course, in the, in the Nirnaith Arnoidiad, the other side is completely delayed and never gets there. So how cool would it be in this moment to have it look like that's going to happen? Right. Have it have it, you know, there be continual anxiety Have Mablung continually looking out. Um, Does anyone see them yet? Is Thingol coming yet? He's not here yet. What does this mean? Is he not coming? Has he been defeated? Have they been to, you know, are we going to all be killed before he gets here? Um, He was counting on their arriving earlier and they haven't arrived yet. Um, But then they do arrive. Right. And although Denethor dies and it's tragic and there are many losses among the green elves, um, uh, the day is still saved and the battle is still won and Treebeard comes and helps and everything and, and, and the thing. And so it ends sadly, but well, right? And then, of course, so it looks like we're setting up the same thing when we get to the near Nith Arnoidiad, except that time it's just going to, everything's going to be horrible, right? And it's, and the the disaster that it looks like might be coming here on the Eastern Front actually will come, right, uh, in the near Nith Arnoidiad. Um, so, uh, so I think that that's, um, uh, I, I think that that's how it should be played. Do we need to come up with a, a, a specific excuse, a specific reason why Thingol was delayed? Um, maybe we could, right? You know, to have, you know, Mablung leading the, leading the desperate, uh, the desperate defense, something, um, I mean, I mean, it could just be like bulldog winning. Can anybody think of a, of a, of a good reason for Thingol's delay, other than just again like it not going as well as they had hoped at first, which is kind of hard to explain on screen. Um, uh, ooh, Hakan says they should expect the dwarves. Yeah, to have the dwarves not showing up, and so have 
there be um, some misunderstanding and miscommunication maybe so that part of the plan originally is that the dwarves show up too. And so when the dwarves don't show up, far more of the orcs can concentrate on Thingol's army than had been part of the original plan. And so this could breed ill will between the elves and the dwarves. The elves thinking the dwarves failed us, right? And that's why so many of the green elves ended up dying. This battle would have been over had the dwarves come as we hoped that they would and as they intimated that they probably, you know, that, that they were planning to do, um, they should send some, we should get some kind of messenger from the dwarves saying we're coming, right? We're, we're going to help. Um, and so they're counting on it and then it doesn't happen. So then we get distrust continuing, right? Now the dwarves are going to come, but they're going to come a little bit late. They're going to come and attack the orcs as the orcs are retreating. Um, so the dwarves are going to come through. The, the, the dwarves aren't going to betray them, right? And so the dwarves can also feel a little bit ill done by because they'll be like, hey, what do you guys feel like? You you know, why are you guys mad at us? Like, we did everything we could. We came as soon as we could. You know, it's not our fault that we didn't, uh, that we didn't get there in time, um, you know, or that the orcs move faster than we expected or whatever exactly as Marielle was just suggesting. Um, uh, so... Um, so yeah, so no, Nick. Yeah, so the orcs arrive. The, the dwarves arrive and almost annihilate the the orcs, right? And so they feel like, hey, we did our part, right? This is it. Like, what a team we've made. And then, but and Thingol will acknowledge this. I mean, again, it's not like anyone is going to actually say the dwarves are traitors, but you know, it it can kind of simmer, right? There will be some sentiment among the green elves, especially some particular anti dwarf sentiment among the green elves, and possibly, uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, Treebeard would uh, be uh, possibly thinking about this. So, um, anyway, yeah, there's lots of ways that we can we can work that. But but uh, Hakan, that seems to me a, a really great solution because that opens up wonderful opportunities for again continuing to build this kind of complex tension between the uh, elves and the dwarves of the Blue Mountains there in this region as we as we move forward. I really like that. So yeah, so so the defense of Amonareb by Mablung and the Green Elves takes it just has to end up lasting much longer than they thought they were going to have to stand. And that's why in the end they be, they are almost completely overwhelmed and Denethor is killed. Um, uh, okay, so that's great. Um, another <clears throat> suggestion from the discussion board about Bulldog's inability to adapt to new strategies, his advantage or superior numbers and better equipment. Yeah, I don't think that we see much much strategy, um, you know, anything in the way of innovative tactics by Bulldog and the orcs. I, he's just pounding with superior numbers uh, and good equipment. Oh, on the subject of equipment. Are any of the dwarves selling weapons to the orcs? I know that, like, the orc kingdoms as a whole are going to be allied with the elves. But do we have any rogue elements among the dwarves who have decided, you know, under the counter to try to maximize their profits by the affair and sell arms to both sides? Should we make that happen? I, I mention this because this explicitly happens in the 1930... the 1930... Uh, the 1933 and the 1937 Quintus Amarillion. So it's... that... that's on the table, right? Um... Ooh, Phil says, does this touch on the issue of the petty dwarves? 
Yeah, Nick is talking about that. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. That could be what the petty dwarves do wrong and why they get exiled. Love that. Love it. So I'm just saying, if we're going to have that for later, we don't need to make a big deal of it now. But would we want to raise the fact? Would somebody, one of the elves, observe on the battlefield? Like, point to a dead orc and say, you know, that doesn't, doesn't that look to you like dwarf armor that that orc is wearing? Right? Anybody else notice that some of these orcs are wearing dwarf equipment? Right? Um, again, nothing needs to come of it right away, but... Um, uh, but I, I'm just wondering, if, you know, maybe not now. Maybe we save that for later. I'm open. Just wanted, just wanted to raise the issue. If perhaps we wanted to think about uh, starting to sow the seeds of that here in this, be, just because of the the, the the thinking of the relationship between the uh, the elves and the um, uh, and the dwarves here. Um, yeah, cool. Um, and yes, Phil, you're right that Tolkien does say that um, the, the, the passage I think you're thinking of, Phil, is that at the Battle of the Last Alliance, there were some of, of every race in the world was divided with some on each side except for the elves, right? So that logically that suggests there were evil dwarves who were fighting for Sauron in the in the Battle of the Last Alliance. Um, so yeah, like having dwarves uh, uh, be you know, being bad guys is, is legitimate. Right. But, um, but anyway, yeah. So, um, like I said, just consider, you know, script people, keep it in mind. If it, if it works great, if not, we can do it later. But I love that as being the reason for the, uh, for the exile of the petty dwarves down the road. I think that's perfect. Okay. Uh, uh, tragedy of the death of Denethor at Amon Ereb. Okay. So let's think about that a little bit. The death of Denethor. How does he die? How does he die? Um, what kind of death do we want Denethor to die? Do we want him to die a heroic sacrificing of himself, you know, putting himself between enemies and somebody else, you know, to like to save somebody else? Is that the kind of death we want Denethor to die? He should die a good death, Marielle, I agree. But again, anticlimactic. He should just take a stray arrow. <clears throat> that, that, he could, right? You know, I mean, we could have one of those moments where, like, you know, he he says, uh, "I mean, I wouldn't want to, um, I wouldn't want to go too far in the other direction." I mean, though, this kind of thing happens all the time. Um, what was the name of that? What was the name of that Union general? Reynolds, John, uh, John Reynolds, who was killed in like the very first skirmish before the Battle of Gettysburg, right? So that like one of the issues of the Battle of Gettysburg was that Reynolds was dead and died in the first minutes uh, of the first encounters at Gettysburg and so was not there for the entire battle. Um, just shot on his horse from a distance, like by a stray bullet. Um, you know, we could do something like that, uh, but I, I, I don't think we should go quite that far. Um he could die a heroic death at Bulldog. Bulldog could be the one to kill him, you know, which would be, that would certainly make sense. Um, I'm, I'm kind of inclined. We're, we're going to have so many, so many self-sacrificial heroic deaths. Throughout yes. the course of this, this yes. story and series 
Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. That's quintessential Tolkien. But mm-hmm. I just kind of wonder if maybe we can do something different here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, we could make him just swarmed under. That kind of fits the description, right? Um, David Attlee is saying we could give him the death that, Aam- that Aamir was kind of looking for at the Battle of Pelennor Fields, right? A last stand on a hill with his personal guards surrounding him and, you know, just overwhelmed and all of them slaughtered by superior numbers. Um, that works, and that, that fits the text description of how Denethor dies. Uh, uh, Hakan is, has a, a, a novel suggestion that he could die fairly early on in the battle, um, and that that could be one of the early turning points that causes great dismay among the Green Elves. Like, he doesn't have to be a climactic death in the sense of he dies near the end, right? Um, his death could be not the final straw, but the turning of the tide. Um, everything is going swimmingly with Mablung's uh, ambush leading to siege to draw off the orc's plan until Denethor is killed, right? And then the green elves lose spirit, and then the defenses start to be overwhelmed, and the dwarves don't show up, and Thingol doesn't show up yet, and it looks like everything is going downhill, and it's just Mablung trying to rally the rest of the green elves who are horribly dispirited from the death of Denethor. Um, I kind of like that. I kind of like that, actually. Um, I don't remember a lot about the Battle of Malden, but could there be some some whiff of that in this in this battle? I don't know that we'd want to use that here. Okay. Someday we should. But someday we should. Yeah, no, it's definitely, the Battle of Malton is definitely worth remembering. Um, But, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, Mike Hockstad, of course, points out that in having Denethor die near the beginning of the battle rather than towards the end, you know, at the very end of the battle, um, we're also kind of previewing Feanor dying early, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mariel, I was thinking of the same thing. We should save the Battle of Malden parallels for a, for a, 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 a mannish battle rather than an elvish battle. That's kind of what I had in my head too. Um, yeah. Um, now you're right, Nick, that we do have to be careful that the, the audience doesn't know Denethor very well. So, um, there is the risk of lowering the tra- the tragedy if he dies really early. Right, it won't necessarily have the same kind of emotional impact. I think that the, um, I think that the way to counteract that, it seems to me, Nick, would be to have prompt the viewers in their response to the death of Denethor by the response of the rest of the Green Elves, right? Um, by showing their the lamentation and despair that they get into. Um, it is when Denethor dies that every that all of them start feeling that they're going to die, and that's where everything that's where everything wavers. Um, ooh, yes, Tony's got it, uh, Marielle. Tony says we should save uh, Entrish. Uh, uh, Tony says we should save Malden for Haleth. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, anyway, um, uh, yeah. So I think if we if we if we show the impact on others 
on the screen enough. I mean, no matter what we do, we're not going to be able to have time to make everybody fall in love with Denethor, right? I mean, we're just we're not, we don't have too much time for character development for him. So um, we will have had him a little bit to introduce him, but um, I don't think we can shoot for uh, a close emotional commitment, you know, on the part of the viewers for Denethor before he dies. I don't think that's really possible. Um, but. Uh, um, Yeah. Uh, man, it would really kind of tear Treebeard up, wouldn't it? To be thinking about how he arrived too late to save... You know, Denethor was already dead and had been dead for a while um, when he shows up. That's, uh, that's sad. That's sad. I like it. That's good. Um... Milthalio, that we haven't discussed that, and we probably should. So Milthalio brings up an an important point um, that we need to make sure that people aren't thinking too much of of Steward Denethor. I mean, we've got the name thing, right? Um, obviously, no one's going to be identifying him exactly. I mean, it's not it's, it's not going to be. Uh, we're not going to have to explain that he's a different character, but the so we have to be aware of the association, right? I mean, we have to be aware. We have to be very consciously managing. Uh, the fact that the viewers, when they hear his name, are all going to be picturing Stuart Denethor, right? and everyone's going to have this image of, you know, Denethor on fire, jumping off the prow of Minas Tirith. So we need to keep that in mind and and make sure that we're kind of actively combating that. Um, uh, I think Milthaliel, to me, the most important thing is. Well, I think there are two things that we can do. Um, yeah, David, I, th- that's the first thing I was thinking, as David Atlas just sug- uh, 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 suggesting, we make Denethor a wise leader, right? Um, yeah, so the thing that we have to resist the temptation to do, I think, is to make Denethor yield to the counsels of despair at all, right? He shouldn't. Um, but here's the kind of cool thing, you know, and this way we can kind of have our cake and eat it too, right? On the one hand, we can differentiate elf Denethor, um, by having him be a bold and stalwart leader until the end, though his end comes fairly quickly. Um, but, you know, he, he doesn't waver. He doesn't, you know, there's, so there's no question of him following in the footsteps preemptively of, of, of Stuart Denethor, right? But we can also, we can, so we can have our cake, but we can eat it too by having his death bring despair, right? So the, the question of like despair and the effect of despair. So the green elves on Amon Ereb with the orcs closing in, yielding to despair is a parallel to the men of Minas Tirith with the armies of Sauron closing in. Uh, giving, you know, tempted to give in uh, to the councils of despair. Um, so that works, right? Um, but yet we don't actually have Denethor uh, play that same role. So I, I think we can, we can we can kind of do it both, and it would be awesome. So yeah, Chris, I, yes, Stuart Denethor has to have been named after Denethor the Elf. I mean, they would have known about that. And what's more, when you look at the lines of the stewards, most of them, are named after famous elves or heroes of the first age. Um, 
There are Turins, there are Turambars, there are Ecthelians, there's Denethor, uh, there's Boromir, who also is a hero of the First Age. I mean, all of them um, are named after heroes of the First Age. So, um, so yeah, I, I have to believe that uh, Ecthelion the Steward deliberately named his son after Denethor the Green Elf. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Milthalia, I agree. It does make Denethor the Second, you know, Denethor the Steward, giving in to despair more ironic and sad. Yeah, exactly. See, we are all about the long game on the Silm Film Project, right? We are all about setting up awesome moments that won't happen for fifteen years by the choices that we make in these current episodes. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, that's the plan. Um. Yeah, Chris points out that logically, therefore, um, uh, Denethor the steward's parents must have seen some qualities in Denethor the green elf that they wanted emulated in their son, right? They they didn't want to say, hey, isn't that that, that that tragic hero who died early? Yeah, let's name our kid after him. That sounds great. There has to have been something, right? Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, cool. Yeah, Nick says, I hope we can remember all these awesome moments that we set up when we get there. True that. But again, that's that's why uh, that's why we're all raising the next generation, right? That hopefully they will uh, be studying uh, the ancient archives of these early seasons well, uh, so that when the time comes for them to write the later seasons, they will uh, hold all of these things. They will treasure all these things in their memories. Um, okay, uh, final point about the first battle. Uh that we should introduce Cyros as a green elf who survives and goes to Doriath after. The question, should we do that? We have to, don't we? So, just for those of you who don't remember, Cyros is the elf of Doriath uh, in Thingol's court, um, whom Turin hucks a drinking vessel at and breaks his mouth, uh, and then later kills. Um, here's the challenge with Cyros, is that we know two things about Cyros. Well, I mean, I guess more if you include like that he was a trusted advisor of the king and whatever. But um, but the two essential elements of Cyros is that he is an Andor, right? So he is a he is a green elf. We you know that that's that's it's 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 good that uh, uh, that you guys remember to bring him up here. Um, the second problem, though, is his character. Now, Mario is asking, how much of a jerk do we make him now? Um, that's a good question, right? We don't have to make him a jerk now. He could become a jerk later on. Um, he could be he could be the annoying one at the battle, right? I mean, he could be like the guy who leads people in despair. You know, he could be the, the voice of the despair of the of the green elves, right? He could be the one who's complaining and saying, we're all going to die, we're all going to die. Um, that could totally be his role. If we're going to have the green elves in despair, we're going to kind of want somebody to do that, aren't we? Aren't we, aren't we going to want one of them? to speak up and say, oh my gosh, we're all going to die, we're all going to die. Um, so we could make that be Cyros. But here's my problem. So my problem is not like that we, there's any challenge necessarily in establishing him as a, like a dubious character. Uh, the problem is, for me, uh, uh, is, and Nick also points out that it's also handy to have another named green elf with De- Denethor dead. We have nobody left, but like faceless green elf extras, right? So having somebody else there who that we can give a name to and who can be a significant figure is, is, is useful. Um, 
but uh, um, but see, Tony. Okay, so I'm thinking this thing. So Tony is suggesting another option for Cyrus. What if Cyrus isn't the voice of despair? What if he is instead brave and noble in the battle, right? But embittered and traumatized by his experience, and this is one of the things that kind of leads him down a negative path, which ultimately leads yes. to his confrontation with Turin. <clears throat> I was going to ask about that. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I like, like Dairon, I would also like to. Um, flesh out and possibly rehabilitate uh, Cyrus. Right. Uh, I like that idea a lot. I like, I like the idea of, um, of doing kind of a more modern, modern-ish story, war story about a guy who, you know, suffers some, through something like that and then kind of has to deal with the consequences of it. Right. <clears throat> yeah, that'd be good. Let's do that. Here's the challenge to that, though. Or here's the problem. That's, well, first of all, the biggest advantage of doing that is that we would explain how he gets to be Thingol's advisor in the first place, right? I mean, if he's just a jerk from day one, um, if he's like the jerk and wet blanket and possibly coward, why would Thingol even take him into his council in the first place, right? So there needs to be some good reason um, why he is uh, in, like, the inner circle of, of, uh, of, of Thingol's counselors. But, but, Dave, here's my problem. Help me to work this out with the, like, PTSD Green Elf story of Cyrus. The problem is that later on in the Turin story, he's not only a jerk, he's a fop. Um, remember, he's going to be all about, like, he's, he's, he's all about, like, fancy dress and, and, uh, primping. Right? Um, he's going to be not just a, a traumatized former soldier who is resistant to Turin as up-and-coming young stud soldier, right? Um, right? He's going to be scornful and disdainful at Turin because Turin doesn't comb his hair, right? Um, he looks right. down on Turin because he wears ragged clothing. He's a fop. He's an esthete. Can we just get rid of that? No, because then we would lose the the the, the wonderful lines about the women of uh, Dorloman running like deer, clad only in their hair, and and the 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 way that that plays in with like we have to have that, like we have to have the the way that those comments work with his his anxiety about his mother, and because see, this is part of the problem, right? Uh, the drama. <sighs> This is why I'm having a hard time reconciling it, Dave, because at the end of the day, the story with Cyrus and Turin, which I think is such a useful story uh, in that moment, Doriath has been sheltered for a long time at that point. Yes, there's battle on the frontier, but everyone's safe and comfortable. Like, the people of Doriath are like fat cats at that point, right? Um, They haven't had hardship in ages. And here comes Turin, uh, the refugee, Right, Turin, the, the 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 orphan fosterling of the men of the north, who knows that his father has been taken in battle, that his his kingdom has been destroyed, his mom is left alone, his people are refugees and oppressed by the easterlings that have come in. He knows suffering that the elves around him don't know. He, apart from just being human among elves, he is the one whose life is already touched by sorrow and hardship that the people around him, the elves around him, just don't, they, they haven't experienced. And Cyrus is like the symbol of that, right? He's the, the sort of sleek, right. preening, shallow jerk 
um, who just totally doesn't get it, right? And who is utterly out of touch um, with the sorrow of two. I mean, the 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 insensitivity of the remarks that Dairon makes about the women of Dor Loman is shocking, right? Shocking. Um, and I don't want to lose that, but that's but that that's what I can't jive. I can't I can't make. Cyros uh, as representative of that, as like spokes, spokesperson for the sleek and comfortable people of Doriath who are growing complacent within the girdle of Melian. No, no, you're, you're, no, no you're, you're right. We shouldn't lose that. Uh, that. That's a good point. I was kind of, you know, I was imagining like, um, I was imagining a story in which, um, uh, in which he's... Um, He's sort of the war, the war weary, embattled guy who kind of who who objects to Turin, like changing him into a guy who objects to Turin because he foresees that Turin's going to, you know, screw up and bring about hardship and bad things. But actually, we have multiple characters like that throughout Turin's story. Right. Exactly. Sort of, yes. Sort of, yeah, yeah. Who warn everyone else like this guy's bad news? So we don't really need that. Not, I I like this. So. Um, but okay, so maybe he doesn't have to be have PTSD from the battle. What if he's sort of the um, aristocratic um, sort of? Maybe he maybe he's in the battle, but he's sort of the like you know the arrogant jerk guy who's like commanding forces, but not really like in there fighting with them. He's the lead from behind type, right? So, so he can be kind of he can be a good soldier and maybe be maybe be um, um, he can be a good soldier and he can contribute to the battle, but he's but there's still this element of him being removed in some way. He's not on the front lines, right? Right. But I think I think it'd be nice to make him not com- not just completely useless, like right. a useless fop. Right. It'd be cool if he's a arrogant fop who. Um, who some of the arrogance is maybe justified because he is effective or skilled or smart, but he's just been too, uh, too, too protected, too privileged, too set, too set apart or something. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, of course, we do have to remember that Cyrus is ultimately going to die um, running naked through the woods in terror of Turin. Like he's not going to die a valiant death, right? He is going to no, die the death of a coward. Um, well, but he doesn't have to be totally cowardly. Like we can, I mean, no. we can make the, the extent to which Turin overcomes him be a testimony to Turin's awesomeness rather than Cyrus's wimpiness. Right. Um, well, also, also I think there's different kinds of, different kinds of, you know, like maybe he is in a one-on-one confrontation with someone like Turin, he's, he's going to turn, he's going to be cowardly, but maybe he, you put him in charge of a, um, you know, of a, of, of an army or a, or a regiment or something, you know, like he's not going to be down there going toe to toe with the orcs, but he knows what to do with them. Like, so maybe maybe what we show is that he's he's a smart guy. Like like we like his role in this battle could be that um, he successfully has his regiment contribute to the pincher action, but he's sitting up on a hill on a horse overlooking it, and he's not in the. And then maybe when his um, maybe when his um, uh, maybe his whole division gets the gets routed and slaughtered, and he runs, um, but not not in sort of a cowardly. Um, embarrassing way, but right. sort of in an right. understandable, like, well, I mean, what's the point of staying and dying, uh, sort of way. Right. Like, like we can show that he's he's not that he he's not the run into the battle and die heroically type, 
he's the retreat type, but we don't have to telegraph the fact that he's going to die a bad cowardly death. We can leave that for later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, we don't have to make him an explicit overt coward or, you know, an, uh, an, uh, an extreme jerk right away. Yeah. But we can kind of open the possibility for those things. Right. Um, we can but, make him not not immediately sympathetic as a hero. Right, right, exactly. Um, so, yes. So people are entertaining sort of, doubts, but it's not uh, it's not clear whether they're deserved or not. Yeah, yeah. Now, well, I'm kind of thinking. I'm, in saying this, I'm I'm thinking of um, I'm thinking of the distinction in um, Song of Ice and Fire between. Rob Stark and, and Tywin Lannister, where, you know, Rob Stark is the guy who inspires his army by rushing in on the front lines and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Tywin Lannister is not that kind. He's the lead from behind kind. Right. But so it's not clear, you know, if put to the test, if, right. if the guy with the sword appeared in front of him, would he fight or surrender and run? But put in charge of an army, he's still pretty terrifying. Right. So I'm kind right. of wondering if there's a, a, a dynamic here like this where this guy is not a completely useless um, um, libertine, you know, like he, he, he's effective in some ways, but, but ultimately with his life on the line, he'll, he'll run. Right. Uh, Nick had an interesting suggestion, a whole bunch of interesting suggestions. I'm going to try to work some of these in. Um, Nick has, has, has a cool suggestion, uh, uh, Dave, that I wonder what you think of. Um, Yes. Using Cyros to explain Mablung's military failure. Now, Nick, I have fewer hangups about Mablung's failure than you do. I don't think that this has to reflect badly on Mablung. I mean, he is doing wonders even to preserve any of the Green Elves. The problem, again, is that the battle hasn't gone according to plan. So, you know, uh, the, the plan was never that they hold out forever against the Orcs. Um, so I don't, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worried about preserving Mablung's dignity. I think we can do fine with him as we are. But Nick had the idea that so, Cyrus, so Denethor dies relatively early. Cyros is the ranking green elf then left on Amon Ereb. Um, Mablung, at some point in the battle, suggests something that they could do which would turn the tide or at least allow them to escape, right? And Cyros resists. And overrules him because, you know, Mablung isn't the boss of them, right? He's not the leader of the Green Elves. And Cyros takes the command of the Green Elves to himself and rejects Mablung's military suggestion. Um, and this is what then, like, leads to the uh, the greater slaughter of the Green Elves. Um, just, I, I, think, I think that that's an interesting suggestion, Um I, I mean, he has to be there. I don't like having him have a heroic role in the battle. I don't think he should be actively heroic. He needn't be actively cowardly, but I, I don't think I want to have him actively heroic either. Um, what, what if he? Um, what if he? What if he arranges a strategic retreat of some kind? That sort of leaves it leaves it in open leaves open leaves it sort of an open question about sort of you know maybe there's a de- yeah there's some kind of debate between him and Mablong where Mablong wants to do something aggressive right um, to right. try and turn the tide right and Cyrus overrules him and says no we're going to retreat and there sort of leaves open this question about like was that the right thing or the wrong thing to do so right. we can show 
we can show the essential character of these guys. Right. Um, but but we don't yet have to we don't have to make it definitive that like oh that coward Cyrus ran away or that coward Cyrus interfered screwed yes. things up. Yes. Like we can leave open the possibility that maybe the retreat was a good idea. Maybe that was the right thing to do. Right. Or or I, I I agree. Yeah. I don't think we want him to be too heroic, but I don't know. I don't want him to just be from day one. It's like, oh, there's that coward Cyrus back at it again, running away again. Right, you know? right. No, I agree. I agree. Um, and, and like I said, we still do have to explain how he's not, you know, why he has the position he has in Thingol's court. So, I mean, he has to have, now, just as the, essentially the presumptive heir of Denethor, um, though, of course, he's not, as Hakon points out, he's not going to be, you know, the Green Elves don't take a leader after Denethor. So he can also feel kind of slighted by that, right? Like he's, he assumes that he's going to take Denethor's position after Denethor dies. And the rest of the green elves are like, no, we'd rather have nobody than you. Right. Uh, but, uh, so, you know, we, we, we could have him kind of souring to some extent from, for that reason later. I mean, that's not a, during the battle issue, obviously, but, um, uh, Dave, when you're thinking about retreat versus aggression, I'm thinking the same thing about him being more defensive, being more um, cautious in battle, and Mablung wanting to be more aggressive. Um, and as you say, so, you know, having opening up the possibility that he is more fearful, that he is more cowardly, right? Though not proving it, you know, not not being an actively let's run away or do something, do something. But um, if he, uh if he, so, but what I'm thinking is clearly Mablung suggesting an, an act of aggression, like actually attacking the orcs. It's hard to see tactically how that could work. I mean, just giving the armaments and everything. But what I am imagining, what if as after Denethor's death and the green elves are dispirited and the orcs are closing in on Emon Ereb and there's no sign of Thingol in the distance, what if Mablung says, we need to break out? Right, you know, we if we get surrounded here and there's no sign of Thingol yet, and now Denethor's dead, and he can see that the troops are flagging, um, his thought is, let's attack over on this side and break out, right, and try to escape because I'm I'm afraid, you know, the way that this is turning, I'm afraid this is going to become a death trap. Now we were expecting both the dwarves and Thingol to be attacking, the, and, and neither of them are here. We can't fight this whole army by ourselves. This is not going to this is not going to end well if we stay here on this hill as we originally planned. Let's change the plan and attack. And Cyrus says, no, it's not attack. Like, basically, he, he's sort of... The cautious thing to do is to stay behind their fortifications, right? Him being like, no, we'll, we'll be safer here. If we attack, we'll get slaughtered. Um, so that would still enable the same kind of dynamic you're talking about, Dave. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Nick was just thinking the same thing. Holding their position um, against uh, instead of launching a sortie, as Mablung would be suggesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, right. Exactly, Marie. It's cautious because he's not obviously wrong. Right. Exactly. He's not being explicitly cowardly. Um, uh, yes. Yes. Um, and then having him in the battle, I would be okay with having him in the battle be a, a more of a lead from behind 
kind of guy, right? Um, we don't have to make a big deal of it, but we could not have him ever be on the... So, you know, Mablung is going to be the one who's going to be showing up, like, totally covered in orc blood regularly, right? Um, and uh, Cyros's, uh person can be uh, kept looking excellent, right? He, he would be unstained by orc blood in the same way that Mablung is. Again, not that he's being a coward, not that he's running away, but he's he's leading from behind. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I can see this working. Um, it may be that Mablung never really trusts him, that Mablung, Mablung might have a kind of a low opinion of him, but that would be okay. It would be okay for there to be some kind of, like, difference of opinion or tension within the council of Thingol. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. All right. I think, I think that that works. I like that. But I, I, we, we certainly have to have him. I mean, I think that we, we need a green elf and we need to introduce Cyrus anyway. Uh, so I think that this, I think that this, uh, that this works. All right. Let's keep going. We don't have much show. This is, I mean, the, 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 I don't regret spending lots of time on the battle because that's a, so here's a suggestion by Hakan of how it could work. So let's kind of read through this and see how this fits in with some of the things we've been talking about. Fingal sends a messenger to the dwarves. Yes. Okay. We need the dwarves coming in. He sends Mablung and a group of Sindar warriors to aid the green elves. Absolutely. Okay. And, and, and we want Tevildo to be spotting them leaving Menegroth. Okay. All right. Um, the messenger to the dwarves passes through eastern Beleriand. Right, the orcs are spread out. Oh, you want them to be killed? Mm, no, I don't want the dwarves, not, the dwarves not to get the message. I want the dwarves to get the message, and I want them to send a message back. I, I want the elves to be expecting the dwarves to come. Um, and I want the dwarves to think that they have fulfilled their part of the bargain. But I want the elves to be feeling like the dwarves took their sweet time, and it's kind of partially their fault that, you know, Denethor and so many of the green elves died. Um... And I want the dwarves thinking that those darn elves are hard to please and they did what they said they would do and the elves are still not satisfied. So that's kind of the situation. So I don't want there to be that tragic a miscommunication from the beginning. I think the message should get through and be returned. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, because I, I think the anticipation should be should be should be bigger there. Okay, so yes, Mabung comes and he he advises uh, Denethor, right? Uh, we're talking about that. Um, Thingol is going to attack the Eastern Host. Yes, but again, this can happen off screen. I think I think we f- I think the drama of this works better if we stick with Mablung, Denethor, and Cyros through the entire battle sequence. Um, and you know they can talk about what they know and what they expect to be happening and what they're waiting to happen and what they hope these things mean. Um, but they but we don't we don't really show them. We don't really uh, we don't we don't really know. Um. Okay. Um, uh, all right. Um, okay, let's see. So, right, Denethor arrives at the battlefield, right? Okay. No, so, yeah, and here I, I think this should be strategic. Mablung should should have the plan. I, I outlined the tactics that I think that uh, that uh, Mablung and Denethor should be following. We talked about that already. That's good. Um and then Thingol and the Ents arrive to Emon Ereb, not together, right? So the first thing that happens is the Ents arrive and 
prevent Amman Arab from being completely overrun and soon after. And so we can even have a moment where it looks like Treebeard has arrived just in time to die with the rest of them. Right. Um, that they, they, they make, they make a change. Like they, they prevent the orcs from overwhelming the top of the hill. Um, but it still doesn't look like a long-term winning proposition, right? Until then at that point. So the real catastrophe is the arrival of Thingol. Uh, and then and then he arrives and Bulldog escapes. Do we kill any Ents? Marielle asks. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, yes. so, somebody are su- involving them in the battle. Yeah, somebody suggested earlier that Bulldog should totally kill an Ent. I agree. We we want to show that Bulldog is is serious business. Um, having Bulldog yes. take down an Ent, I think, would be good. Um, yeah, Bulldog should not get stepped on. Yeah, yeah. Um, Do you, out of curiosity, Corey, what's your feelings about the way the Ent fighting uh, in uh, in Two Towers in the Jackson film? What did you think about the way that was portrayed visually? The actual their actual attack in Isengard is not bad. Um, yeah, uh, I mean certainly. I kind of think sometimes when the orcs are like pulling an ent over or setting it on fire, it looks a little hokey. But I, I don't really know how else to, how else you would show that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 ex- Mary and Pippin are very emphatic in their description about how one sided a one-on-one fight between an ant and anybody is, right? So the idea, you know, the, the yes. image of the the ants just swatting orcs and throwing them around and stuff, that seems inescapable, right? Um, yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, I think that that works, but Bulldog is not a normal orc, right? He should be far larger uh, and showing him over... You know, he doesn't have to physically... I mean, he doesn't, like, win an arm wrestling competition with an ant. Um, but showing him... De- you know, he, he should have an enormous axe. Uh, and, you know, showing him, like, lopping off the limb of an orc and then taking it down uh, and having the the ant then being... Or, did I say orc? Ant, I meant. And then having the ant being swarmed over by other orcs should be... Uh, should be... should be a thing. Um... Yeah. Um, would they even use fire? I don't think they do. I, 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 I don't think the orcs would have fire necessarily. Would they be burning the hillside to burn the elves out? I don't think so because I think that Amon Arab is going to be too rocky for that probably. Um, yeah, I think we want, um, as Mythalio is pointing out, I think we want a... Um, um, I think we want more foreshadowing about ends and axes, right? Um, in order for the significance of Treebeard to say a dwarf and an axe bearer, right? Um, it would be good to show at least one ent being taken down by axes, right? Uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems yeah, it seems like it seems like with ents, you 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 never manage to take one down with like a concerted effort, like, like a dedicated, like, you know, let's attack this end. It seems like it tends to be a cumulative damage where like, as they're, you know, mowing down uh, a few dozen or a hundred orcs that eventually they get enough axes and burns and arrows that they get hobbled a little bit. And then somebody gets a lucky shot in. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. Yep. Maybe maybe Bulldog pounces on a um, on a straggler who's like who's been in the thick of things and has taken a lot of damage. Right. He could just come up from behind and uh, and you know fell an ent. You know. Yeah. I mean, it could be fairly gruesome. He could like split it instead of like chopping it. He could split it with his axe so that we see it actually mm-hmm. split. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. No, lots of, uh, lots of possibilities there. Ooh, Marielle, great question. Uh, do the ant wives come too, or just ants? Do we have ant wives in the battle? Are they traveling together and they both show up? Hmm. Good question. The ants are the, the wandery ones. What do we do with the ant wives? When, when last we saw the ant wives, didn't we have them setting up agriculture? Weren't we planting groves and stuff in Osiria? Isn't that where they were? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, so I think, I mean, they're there, but I don't think, I, I think it should be just the Ents, because it should be the wandering Ents who come in. Um, I would think that if the battle came, like if the Orc Horde came into Osirian and and start, you know, were threatening to burn the fields and groves, that the Entwives would take action. Um, yeah. Uh, well, and but Maria, it's unavoidable. It does. Well, so, Maria, I don't think. First of all, I don't think that all of the Green Elves are on Amon Arab. I mean, we don't have, you know, it's, it's, this is a, this is a green elf army that has been rallied by Denethor with Mablung, right? It's the green elves, the green elves response to the call of Thingol to, 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 to battle and to defend their homeland. But there is not a one, you know, it's not like the, all of the green elves are there, right? So there are still many of the green elves back in Osirian, um, and the Entwives would be there too. So the Entwives could see themselves as like, you know, their job is to help to defend, you know, where the elves and ants live together. Um, but, um, yeah, Maria, we'll keep this in mind. At some point, we, we, you're right, we do need to have an ant wife in battle someday. We do need to show an ant wife kicking butt in battle at some point. Like, an, an ant wife smackdown should occur at some point. I agree. Um, I'm thinking maybe in the battle with the dwarves, uh, with Baron later on is maybe a better opportunity for that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Okay. I think that'll work. Um, all right, cool. So let's, uh, before we totally run out of time, let's talk about the other subplot of this episode. Uh, the setting off onto the Helker axis. So Fingolfin's decision to head north was made last time. Now, this is okay because we already talked about this a lot last time. We, we set the stage for this. The question is how do they, that, that, that you know, I was arguing passionately last time for differentiating between the choice not to turn back to Valinor and the choice to cross the Helkaraxa because they were not yet at the Helkaraxa and didn't really know what it meant and what it might cost, right? So... They've made the decision to go on. They get to the Helker. So now they've gotten to the Helkaraxa. We're looking at the grinding ice, and we're seeing exactly what a nightmare this whole land bridge that they've heard of is. They know it's going to be dangerous. They know that many of them are going to die. They're already freezing cold. 
Um, and now they're confronted with the question, why is this worth it? Why should we go through with this? Why shouldn't we, why shouldn't we turn and go home now? Why, uh, you know, in the cost benefit analysis of crossing the Helcaraxa, what are the benefits that justify, um, the sacrifice and the hardship that they are preparing to go through? And here's where I think we get, wasn't it Angrod that we decided was going to be the, we need to take vengeance on Feanor and his, and his, uh, and his people, right? Um, uh, I think it was Angrod that we agreed. So he, he should make his speech here that he is determined to go because he is not going to let anything stand between him and, and Feanor's people. Um, we want, and, and there should be some general agreement. With that, because uh, remember, we're going to want to set up at the very end in episode thirteen when the army of Fingolfin arrives, and there's the there are the Fanorians there down by the lake. This should look like a battle that's about to happen, right? So we need to have the folks like Angrod who are all who are ready, who have been they've been gunning for this for a while, right? So, uh, um, yeah, I think that that should be that should be good. Now, uh, Mariel also makes a really good point with which I agree that Elenwe. Uh, the wife of Turgon, who dies in the crossing of the Helcaraxa. Um, Elenwe should be one of the ones advocating going on. As Mariel says, I want her actively involved in the decision that kills her rather than just being the victim of the decision of the men around her. I agree that, that we, we do want that. Um, now, I don't think that Elenwe should be thirsting for the blood of the Feanorians. I don't think that's her motivation. Uh, that would seem a little bit odd in the wife of Turgon. Um, uh, as we have established Turgon as the, you know, the visionary, like, uh, you know, sort of pious one, right? So, um, Mariel suggests that Elenwe foresees that her family has a great destiny in Middle-earth, and so they they should go forward. Um, yeah, Mariel, that's got to be one of the main arguments, right? Um, one of the main arguments is it's, it's not that crossing the Helcaraxa is shrewd, right? It's that crossing the Helcaraxa is necessary. Um, it is our destiny to return to Middle-earth. Um, th- that is the way that our path is laid. And if this is, the, if, if this is the path that we must tread in order to get there, then so be it. This is what, then this is what we have to do. Um, so that, that sense of necessity, that sense of doom... Um, I think has to be one of the major reasons that they choose to go. Um, are there any other arguments, Dave, that you can think of that we should have people raise? The, like, we want to get back at Feanor reason, the it is our destiny to return to Middle-earth and we must do so, how, so you know, whatsoever the cost. Um, anything else that we should be raised? Return to, uh, we don't want to return with our tails between our legs. Right. That's what led them. That's one of the main things that led them to go on the first time. Right. Uh, you know, last episode. Is that still enough? See, that's the argument that I think well, is going to waver. Here. When you add it on to everything else, maybe. Right. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. As Mario points out, there will there'll be some people who will say, look, we can't. Like, what choice do we have? Right. You know, we're. Uh, you know, it's like the devil or the deep blue sea here. Like we can't go home. We have been cast out. Um, uh, so yeah. yeah, it does. When you, when you actually do the thought experiment though, it does sort of raise the question of why would anyone do this? Right. Well, exactly. <laughs> is there anything that's actually a good enough reason? <laughs> right. Exactly. And this is why, I th- so like, th- this is why this is so interesting, right? Cause many of the reasons that seemed like good enough reasons to set out from Valinor 
are going to fall flat here, right? Like take, for instance, you know, Goadriel's desire to establish realms under her own command, right? I mean, seriously, is establishing a realm under your own command worth this? Are you going to be faced with the Hell Caraxa and be like, I don't know, man, but I really want that realm. Like, I think it's totally worth it, right? I, that, that, that's not enough to make them cross the Hell Caraxa. There has to be more. Um, and that's what I think is so cool about this well, moment is that it pushes past well, those more superficial uh, reasons. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering, I mean, is this really does this really boil down to um, – the reason the reason that the the bulk of the the Noldor go is because they're following somebody. So right. somebody has to give them like a speech that whips them up. And then the people that they're following, each of them has to have individual reasons that I think on the surface still don't sound like good enough reasons. And it has to be explained by that, you know, basically each of these guys are just kind of a little crazy or obsessive. Right. Um you right. Know, the, Maybe there isn't actually a particularly good reason to do this, and that there's something there's something a little worrisome and concerning that Gladriel or Fingolfin or whoever whoever we want to to make the driving force. The fact that they're so insistent on doing it maybe isn't necessarily a good thing, or at least it's uncertain, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's at least it's at least dubious. It, it's at least reasons that are available to be doubted by others, right? Right, right, right. right. Um, exactly, right. yes. Um, there's sort of, there, there are things that maybe, maybe, maybe there's something, maybe there's something in the abstract that, that seems noble right. and admirable about like, you know, well, we're going to show, show everyone that we can't be defeated and we can conquer the hell crack, you know, and oh, that's a very impressive thing to do. But, but that, 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 the, when weighed against the cost of all the people dying um, along the way, really calls into question whether these people have the best interests of these leaders have the best interest of the Noldor people right. in, in mind. Like, yeah, I think it has to be very uncertain. And when I don't, we, I don't think there's, I don't think there's going to be any reason we can give where just rationally explained people are going to look and say, "Oh, naturally, we need to do this." Right. Right. Exactly. And I don't think we should try to do that. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, I agree. I agree. I, I, I mean, we want to make it, I don't think we want to make it look shady, you know, and we don't want to make it look just bewildering. Like, why are these morons doing this? Um, but to have, um, to have there be like cause to doubt. Cause remember those doubts are going to surface. We're going to have, this is one of the cool things that I like about dividing up the hell Caraxa over three episodes, essentially. Right. Is that we're going to come back to them again in the next episode. And there's going to be some people who are like, okay, uh, does anybody else have second thoughts about whether or not this was a good idea? Maybe we should still turn back. Right. I mean, I, that's got to be happening. Um, and so having some of these things come to the surface, uh, you know, I think that that's uh, that that's 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 worth it. Chris Graham makes has a really good summary here. He he suggests that motivations include uh, loyalty to the you know to the to the, you know their leaders who are going over to, to the to the to, to the Noldor and to others who are suffering. Um, revenge, desire for revenge against Fanor and Morgoth as well. Um, a feeling of shame about the events of the kinslaying, there can be some who might even voice it that like, there's something actually like purgatorial in the crossing of the Helcaraxa. Like, yes, we're going to suffer, but don't we deserve it? You know, um, maybe by 
there are some of them who actually are sort of feeling that by, you know, continuing through the sufferings of the Helcaraxa, they are like, you know, uh, punishing themselves. It's like purging their sin of the, and that when they emerge from the other side, it'll like be better in some way. I'm not saying that that's rational, but Dave, as you're pointing out, like the reasons don't all have to be perfectly rational, right? Um, uh, atonement, Chris, exactly. Um, uh, many who've, and, and, and Chris also, uh, lists, you know, hope, hope and a desire for a better future for middle earth. You know, those who have, who do have, and I, I agree with Marielle that, that Elenway should be among these who have a sort of a positive vision, uh, for, what's going to happen, you know, that they have a positive destiny to fulfill. They're meant to go to Middle-earth. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think that all of those things could 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 come up. And the lovely thing about all of those is that, Dave, as you were suggesting, every single one of those reasons is something that you can easily doubt and argue against when things get really, really bad, right? N- none of those is a slam dunk. None of those is obvious. Um, yeah, yeah, they all—they all seem like excellent reasons for relocating to the <laughs> northeastern region of, uh, of Amman, or, or, or um, right. you know, or or of taking a stroll up and you know uh, having a look see at the uh, at the ice bridge. <laughs> but I think you know once you're in the thick of it and like the guy next to you just froze to death, right. I think they're all they're all going to seem pretty hollow and flimsy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and that's going to be interesting. It's one of the things we're going to need to be thinking about in the third sequence, you know, or at the end of the second sequence, what keeps them going on? Right. Because that, that's not the same question. Right. Dave, exactly as you're pointing out, what leads them to make the decision to, to undertake the crossing of the Helcaraxa is does not answer the question. What keeps them going? when they're, when so many of them are starting to die and everything looks horrible. Um, uh, so we, we, we will need to think about that separately, but, um, uh, but that's good. Okay. Um, now we do, uh, so we are, the, the suggestion was that we kill off Elenway in this episode. I agree. I think that that would work really well. Um, especially, uh, sort of poignant as she has been one of the spokespeople for prophetic hope for the future and that going is a positive good. And then, uh, she dies. I agree with the idea of her falling into the ice, you know, like just the ice breaking and her sliding down into like the, you know, the icy water and drowning. Um, that seems, uh, that seems to me to be, I like that. I don't, you know, I don't want her like, you know, eaten by a creature or something like that. I think, you know, having her drown sounds good. Um, uh, and that certainly can be done with her message of hope that can be done really interestingly, I think. Um, so I really like that as sort of the culmination of the Halkaraxa subplot of this episode. So cool. Yeah, good. Sounds good. And then briefly, this is the last thing to touch on and then we're going to go. Um, so the Feanorian storyline, a lot of the things that are on this slide are only really relevant as we're building up to the battle. We'll come back to this stuff next time. Um, but we do want to remind people that the Feanorians are there, right? So um, the uh, we, we, we want to have at least one scene where the host of Feanor is moving up the Firth of Drengist and, and scouting things out. Um, I think maybe even having them arrive at Mithrim um, 
would be fine, right? You know, so just having a having a scene of them crossing the land and and you know, Fanor kind of looking out over Dorloman and seeing the Lake of Mithrim and uh, um, saying something, you know, really uh, arrogant and cocky to uh, um, uh, Kurufin and stuff would, uh, uh, I think, is kind of enough for the Fanorians in this episode because then we're preparing. We have shown the scene. Right of the battle that's going to happen in the next episode, so um, cool. All right, um, and that's it. That's it. Again, we have very little for the with the Fanorians this time, but that's all right. Um, we oh, Dave, we forgot to do our discussion of Angrod. That's okay. Let's do it next time. Let's when we come back to Fanor. When we come back to Fanor next time, we'll do it then. We'll. we'll, we'll well, f- we yeah, failed. We failed to. Yeah, there was a there was a really interesting uh, comment on our ideas of the with the the, the burning alive of uh, of Angrod um, and the burning of the ships, uh, which I really wanted to talk about and address. But like I said, we'll we'll do that as a segue into going back to Fanor next time. That'll be that'll be fine. Um, I think it was only our instinctive. Uh, sense that it would have been a non sequitur in this episode that kept us from thinking of it. Yes. Yeah, you're right. We didn't forget. We, we didn't it forget. Was, it it was sense. totally strategic. Um, okay, cool. All right, so questions for next time. So remember, next time we're doing the battle with Thanor. Um, so our next session is on Friday, February 9th. We're back to our regular two-week schedule now. So, um, so February 9th, session 15, episode... Ten. Yeah, ten. This was nine. Ten. Okay. Um, so, one question that I have as we're thinking about the battle. How do we distinguish the different sons of Feanor? Um, we've... Are, it, it's it's time, right? We, we have some of them who are distinguished already, right? We, Mithros, through his relationship with uh, with Fingon, we've already established that. Keligorm as the master of Huon, we've started with him, right? Um, but we're going to want to make the, 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 well, the surviving sons of Feanor uh, into more distinguishable characters. We want them less, less of a throng, I'm thinking. Kurafin, we already started with, so we, we've gotten to be, but there are some characters, some of the sons of Feanor we've done nothing with at all, right? Like Karanthir, for instance. I think we've, I don't think we've done a single, a single thing with Karanthir yet. Um, uh, and, you know, as we begin to prepare to, you know, move into season four, we're going to want to set some stuff up with them. And it seems to me this this moment, right, when we're just with the fan, we're going to spend most of an episode just with the fan orients is a really good opportunity for us to think about the different personalities of the of the six surviving sons of fan and the kinds of actions that they would take uh, and how we would make those up. So I just I, I just want to challenge people to be thinking about that. How can we work the development of the sons of, of the characters of the sons of fan uh, into this episode. Um, and um, then second, uh, how do we handle the Balrogs in battle? Um, we are finally, this will be the first time, is that true? Yes. This will be the first time we will have had the Balrogs in battle against elves, right? Um, the Balrogs were involved in the battle with uh, uh, the Valar, you know, at the end of season one, but this is the first time that we have seen Balrogs in battle against incarnate races. 
and we have to just we have to decide how we're going to handle that. The big question, of course, is big Balrog versus little Balrog. Are we going to make the Balrogs the big, you know, few and enormously powerful um, as they appear, you know, when we meet the one in Moria and that kind of thing? Or are we going to go, you know, as many of you know, in Tolkien's earlier work, there were Balrogs all over the place and Turin like single handedly kills dozens of them in the in the fall of Gondolin, you know, in the battle at Gondolin. So or not Turin, Tuor, my apologies, misspeaking. Um, so uh, um, anyway, I, 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 I we need to talk about how we're going to do Balrogs. Are they going to be? You know, is Balrog to Elf in battle going to look like Ent to Orc, right? I mean, are they going to be swatting the Elves around in battle? Or is it going to be more of an equal struggle? How many of them are there going to be in battle? How are we, how are we going to handle this? So um, so I, I think we need, to, we need to kind of figure out the Balrog question uh, for next time. And then uh, what exactly... Is happening in the south now. The dwarves are coming in and cleaning up. Where are we? Who is where? I, we just need to make sure. You know, we've got a lot to clean up and keep track of. And I want to make sure that we are both keeping track of our players, right, in the south, but also focusing on Sauron and Sauron's role in moving his plans forward here, uh, as um, uh, as things are coming apart up here in the north. Um, there was. Uh, talk of having Morgoth order, you know, recall Sauron and his forces from the south uh, to help against the Noldor in the north. Um, uh, how are we going to fit that in with the plans that we have for what Sauron is doing in the south and stuff? I want to make sure that we think all that stuff through uh, thoroughly. So, okay. So those are things that I wanted to challenge you guys to think about for next time. Uh, thanks, everybody, for all of your contributions and discussions. I think we made a lot of really excellent progress today. I'm, I'm pretty happy with... Uh, the death of Denethor and the great slaughter of the green elves. I think we have, uh, uh, we have some, uh, uh, s- some really great material here, uh, which I'm pretty excited about. So thanks everybody. Uh, thanks. Dave. I know Trish had to step out. She had a work thing she had to go to, so she's not with us here anymore, but thanks Dave for, uh, discussion. I'm very today. excited about, this is what's great about this, this whole, uh, endeavor. Uh, we get to dig into things like the, uh, you know, the first battle of Valerian. That's not, not really detailed in the text and then we yeah. can imagine what that would be like and yeah. come up with a really cool story yeah really fun really fun awesome so thanks everybody and i'm gonna switch over to my uh grifflet stream now um but i will see uh, i will see you guys soon and i'll say as always thanks for listening and godspeed